This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 333 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Pete Tanzilli. Now, Pete began his law enforcement career in the military and then transitioned out into the civilian world working on one of the reservations in the U.S. And as you will hear, one evening he was shot on a call and then he chronicles his journey from there to where he is today. There are departments out there that take great care of their people. I have to say the last place I worked for as a firefighter, I had multiple injuries and they did a great job. However, there are also departments that leave their men and women out to dry. Christina Correa was one, and Pete's story you will hear is definitely another one. So this is an area that I really want to shine some light on, especially in this environment at the moment where this profession is being demonized because of the actions of a few. Another little quick note, there is a little tiny crackling the first nine or so minutes of the interview. We had a gremlin in the works. I, it's not distracting in, in any way, shape or form, but if you think it's just stereo, it's not, <laughs> and it does go away. So before we get to that interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating really does make us more visible to everyone looking for a project like this. And then remember, this is a free library for you, the audience. So you can use it individually, you can use it for your department, your company, however you'd like to do it. All I ask in return is that you share these incredible stories from these amazing guests that we have so that I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear it. So with that being said, I introduce to you Pete Tanzilli. Enjoy.
Pete, I want to say welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am currently uh, in a suburb of Denver, Colorado. Beautiful part of the country. Yeah, it is. All right. So I'd love to start at the very beginning. So where were you born and what was your family dynamic? What did your parents do and how many siblings? I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I'm actually, I was adopted by, by my family um, when I was an infant and um, grew up in a suburb of, of Boston. And my father was a dentist. He owned his own dental practice. And my mother was a stay-at-home mom for most of my life growing up until I got to be in high school. And uh, she ended up going to work for, uh, she, she was basically, I mean, an office manager for my father. Um, I have one older uh, brother who was adopted as well. And uh, within the last three years, I was able to locate my biological brother, who's just a few years younger than me. So pretty great stuff. Brilliant. Well, I always ask people when they say they were adopted, was this a dynamic where you knew when you were young that you were adopted or did you find out later in life? I found out probably, I was an adolescent when I found out. Uh, I don't really remember, you know, it wasn't like one of those after school specials when I found out in high school. Uh, I, I pretty much grew up knowing they were fairly open about, about everything. So and it was a closed adoption. So I had no, you know, real information about my biological family. That's all really just started coming in over the last couple of years. Brilliant. Has, has knowing your biological family shed any light onto anything in your past at all? <clears throat> well, I've been able to connect, like I said, with my younger biological brother and my aunt, who is my mother's sister. Uh, it's it sheds some light, sure, on on kind of where I came from, and maybe how, you know, maybe the reason I am the way I am today. Unfortunately, my my biological mother passed away in two thousand and one, and um, yeah, I don't have a relationship. I've never spoken with my biological father, only my only my brother and my aunt. But uh, it has been quite enlightening. It's been a, a really really. We, you know, with a few bumps in the road, it's been a really overall great experience. Yeah. Now, did you have any first responders or military in your family? My adoptive father was in the Army for roughly, I believe, two or three years. He was a dentist. He entered into the Army during or just before the draft uh, with Vietnam. And he uh, enlisted, uh, rather commissioned, as a captain because he knew he was probably going to be drafted anyhow. So he went in for two or three years, was a dentist, uh, in four on Fort hood in Texas and, um, exited, you know, like I said, after that short amount of time. And, and that's when he started his own practice. Brilliant. Did he ever deploy overseas or did he stay on the base? Never did. No, stayed on the base in Fort hood. Uh, my biological grandfather was, um, on Normandy beach um, I believe it was the army that he was with. Um, it, you know, honestly, it could have been the Marines as well. Um, but as far as I know, public safety and the military, those are the only two folks in my family that were, uh, that were a member other than, you know, uh, maybe cousins. Uh, actually, I have a cousin from my aunt, my biological aunt, who is a sergeant, I believe, with Daytona Beach Police Department or the city of Daytona, one or the other. Ah, I, did, I don't, I don't, 
I don't know him though, but yeah, he's fairly close to you. Brilliant. Very cool. All right. Well then what about athletics? When you were school age, did you play sports? <clears throat> I did. Yeah, I was really athletic. I played, um, I played just about everything and, and picked up uh, a lot of sports really easily. I played competitively soccer, tennis, hockey, lacrosse, baseball, uh, basketball, um, nearly everything that you can play. Um, and, and through high school, I played lacrosse, hockey, and soccer uh, a majority of the time. And, and I was on the team, um, you know, the varsity and JV teams for all those sports and was actually captain of, of my soccer team. Right. Well, those are some pretty, um, you know, heavy contact sports too. Did any of those factor in, you think, later on in life when you were in law enforcement? I don't think uh, a huge amount. Um, I believe that everything I've done through high school athletics into the military and into law enforcement outside of, of my injury that we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, I think, I think I beat myself up quite a bit. And I think, uh, you know, some of the problems I have today are contributed from some of those, uh, things I did when I was younger for sure. But I mean, I've, I stayed pretty healthy and, and pretty active up until my injury four years ago. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting as well, because you say that people, when we get hurt in, you know, any, any first responder profession go, oh, but, but you did martial arts. Oh, you did CrossFit or, you know, you play hockey, whatever it is. It's like, well, yes, there's an element of that, but that's also the reason why you were able to be a police officer, a firefighter, a, you know, a member of the military is because that toughens you up and, you know, it's, you, you got to take your knocks to get to the point where you're going to run into a burning building or to, towards gunfire. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think all of that sort of conditioned me and it conditions a lot of other people who do the same thing. Um, they're, especially I think when I was doing it in the, in the early, you know, late eighties, early nineties, you know, being 42 years old now, it was a different time back then. And, and when we started conditioning for our, our specific sports seasons, they, uh, you know, they, they went after us. Our coaches went after us pretty hard. There was you know, there, were, there weren't much breaks. Um, they didn't care if we were, were feeling like we didn't want to do what we were doing or if we, you know, twisted our ankle. They were pretty tough on us. And um, that absolutely, I think, helped me moving forward into the military. And that, of course, being in the military, conditioned me for, for working in public safety after that. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the military. When you were school age, was, was that your ideal profession or did you find yourself going in there in a different route? No, I, I grew up um, pretending that I was, you know, I was in the army and, and I would wear my father's uh, old, old olive drab, you know, the, those really terrible olive drab uniforms. And I would dress up like him for Halloween um, I would also dress up like Ponch and John from the police TV show Chips in the 70s and 80s. And law enforcement and the military was probably all I wanted to do as I was growing up and, and, and going through high school. Well, you mentioned Chips. Did you ever see the remake? I did. The, the movie. Yes. So I've got a little I boy. I think he was about 10, maybe 11. And uh, he wanted to watch Chips. I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, I used to watch that when I was little. It's the two motorcycle policemen. Yeah, we can watch that. And then 90 minutes later, I'm like, oh, shit, that was not appropriate for myself. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's def <laughs> definitely a lot different than what I remember 
um, you know, when I was a child watching that show. But uh, I mean, it's humorous. But yeah, I probably wouldn't sit my son down to to watch that with me. Yes, no, he, he still refers to it. I mean, it, I don't think it damaged him, but it was definitely a, a different script. <laughs> Absolutely, that's funny. All right, well then, tell me how you find yourself going to the Air Force then. I think there was a time maybe my freshman, sophomore, and junior year where I sort of lost track of the whole love for law enforcement and, and the military. Um, I graduated high school in 1996 and I was landscaping. It was my job was landscaping at the time. And I was, I, I, I decided not to go to college even though I had been accepted. Um, and I spent about a year at home after I graduated high school and was just working and doing my thing. And it got to a point where I wasn't getting into any trouble. My father just, he mentioned to me, you know, Hey, why don't we go, you know, do you want to go talk to an air force recruiter? He was really a staunch supporter of, of the air force after, you know, he had been in the army and seen the, I guess, quality of life, especially back then with the other branches of the military. And I knew once he mentioned that, I said, okay, that would be a great idea. And it just kind of dawned on me that maybe this would be a good way for me to finally jump into the law enforcement profession because doing a little bit of research, I knew that I could pick security police, uh, which is our law enforcement entity in the Air Force. Um, I knew that I could choose that for a potential job. And so he took me down to the recruiter's office at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts. And we spoke to the guy and I had no idea. I was just going to get information to leave. And I, and I ended up signing up that day before we left the office. And within months, I was leaving for basic training in San Antonio, Texas. And I'd already picked you get to, you know, you get your, your dream sheet of what you can pick as far as where you want to be stationed and what type of job you want to do while active duty. So I had chosen uh, law enforcement uh, as my first pick. Second was security. They were separated. So law enforcement did all the, the installation entry control. It did the law enforcement patrols. Security worked on the flight lines, on the bases. They worked in maybe uh, weapons facilities. And my last one I picked was actually um, the fire department because I had a, you know, I, I watched uh, that, uh, was it Rescue One or whatever it was, Johnny and Roy. I, I, I kind of wanted to be a firefighter as well. Sometimes I look back and wish I had chosen that. But um, I ended up, getting law enforcement my first choice and <clears throat> i mean that one that was it I, I went to the recruiter's office wanted to get information and i signed up that day and was gone in, in the blink of an eye brilliant now you, you mentioned the base was that the one um next to shirts in texas Cause honestly my, my in-laws oh, san antonio yeah Yes, Lackland Air Force Base is where I did basic training. Gotcha, yeah. My in-laws yeah. are right there. The, the, all the, the jets fly over every day. It's pretty cool mm -hmm. to, to sit there and watch them all. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right, well then, so tell me about your experience you know, doing law enforcement within a military setting. It was interesting because I was 19 when I, when I went in. 
Um, I think I was 19 when I, when I went through basic training, I started in June of 97 and got out of basic training, went straight to the police Academy, uh, was on the same base. I didn't have to go anywhere just across the other side of the base in Lackland. And within a few months I was, um, out of that and stationed at Kirtland air force base in Albuquerque and something that's, I look back on today and, and, you know, it was, it was quite an accomplishment to do at 19, because as you know, in most areas in the United States, you can't become a police officer until you're 21. So I was 19 years old getting stationed at my permanent duty station in Albuquerque and thrown right onto the, the installation um, gates where everyone comes through. Um, So being that I was 19 and carrying a gun and handcuffs or radio pepper spray back then we didn't have tasers i didn't even carry a baton at the time uh the asp baton was just coming out i think um it's kind of it was kind of a brand new thing i had to handle a lot because you're not i mean you're 19 years old you're not quite fully developed at the time and here i am with the authority to arrest people to you know engage in car chases and foot chases and you know and 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 save lives if needed um you know, and, and at first I was really in it sort of, I thought, you know, I want to chase bad guys and, and take them to jail and I, I want the adrenaline and, and, um, definitely not what it was later on in life when I was a civilian police officer. But I mean, I had to handle a lot of responsibility that a lot of 19 year olds, a lot, you know, teenagers in general don't understand the severity of that and how important it is to do that job correctly. And, um, I mean, I loved every minute of it, even working in the gates on the base, you know, we'd have uh, drunk drivers, you know, pull up and, and we'd have to process them and, and do standardized field sobriety testing. And, and, um, it was just a great experience to do that and to learn things that I never thought I'd learned before. And it was a job that basically wasn't the same from, from shift to shift from night to night. So it was a really great experience. Now being a 19 year old, yeah, basically kid, um, can you remember some of the leadership, some of the training that helped forge you into the kind of man, or obviously if there was a, a, a female, a kind of woman to be able to handle that responsibility, especially dealing with, with uh, members of the military? Yeah, it was tough because, you know, I'm in the military stationed on a small, I mean, it was a large base, but relatively small community. And a lot of what I had to do was, was deal negatively with other military members that might be in a different squadron. It was tough because you sort of kind of have this family atmosphere, you know, Hey, we're all, we're all in the United States air force. We're all stationed here together. We're all, you know, we're all in on the same mission as one another. And now I have to arrest you for doing something that's wrong. And that was hard for me to get over. Um, However, I mean, it was something you had to do when you had to do it. I think as far as leadership teaching any, anything to me, I think the bad leadership taught me more than the good leadership did. Although I take, take things away from both. I had some terrible leaders, you know, some, some people that were just not nice people and seemed to be out to get anybody and everybody. And when you're, especially back then, I don't know how it is now. It seems to be a little bit different, but with your rank structure, I showed up as an airman basic. I had no, 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 no chevrons on my sleeve, nothing. And I left as a, as a senior airman. 
So I had three stripes on my sleeve and sort of moved up the ladder a little bit. But there were people in higher positions that would look at people like me and they would really, I mean, you'd be under a microscope at all times. It was very strict all the time. That was hard for me to deal with, but it definitely positioned me better, um, you know, to, to become a civilian police officer, to learn certain things and just to be, I think a better person in general. So looking back at even that bad leadership, I'm thankful for who they were and how they were because it definitely shaped and molded me into, into who I am today. Absolutely. And maybe that was their intent. You know, maybe they weren't bad people. Maybe they really weren't bad leaders. They just had a different leadership style. And again, like I said, looking back, that helped me just as much as the good leadership did. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting perspective. You know, some of them might have, some of them are probably just terrible leaders, but either way, the fact that you took, you know, lessons away is, is, you know, what we all hope to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, you mentioned civilian law enforcement. So, so why did you transition out of the military? I never planned going in to stay in for, to make it a career. Sometimes I look back now and I wish that I did. Um, but, uh, that's honestly neither here nor there. I planned on doing four years. I ended up actually doing five because I discharged honorably from the Air Force in June or July of 2001. And af- just after that, 9-11 occurred. And I was immediately called back in because I just really just exited the Air Force. <clears throat> and they called me back in for another 11 months. And, um, so I worked that extra, you know, almost a year and wanted to get back out to pursue, you know, my civilian law enforcement career, whatever that was going to end up being. Um, that was always the plan. Right. Now you had two perspectives pre and post nine 11, very, very close together. Did you notice any palpable changes in your role before and after? I think I took it more serious. Um, I, and I think that was partly because I was young when I started doing law enforcement work in the military. And, and when I exited the military that second time, I was 24 years old, which is not a huge difference. But as far as growing up, it makes a difference. So I think that was the biggest thing I took away from it is that I took the job more serious and saw that though I knew there were threats out there, obviously, because I was in the military and we trained for, for things like that. Um, it was a really, really huge difference as far as, well, you know, before they were just sort of suspected threats and it had nothing like that had had ever happened here before. And, you know, there, there had been things that had happened in the past before, before I came about into the military, but now, I mean, seeing how everything happened in New York, Pennsylvania and DC, that affected everything. It affected Albuquerque just as much, I think, as it affected anywhere else as far as how we did our job. Um, and some of the differences, I think, that came about, like, you know, later on, there was a lo- specific line to call if you if you made a traffic stop and you suspected somebody to be uh, connected with terrorism that we would call and we would give their information to. And they would say, yes or no, this person's on a watch list or this person isn't a watch list. And yes or no, let that person go or take them into custody. Those are things that I, when I went into the profession, I never knew I would, I would have to deal with. But uh, I think the biggest takeaway was, was 
just taking the job more serious after that. Right. So then what made you choose the department that you did when you pursued uh, civilian law enforcement? So I left the military and I didn't work. I wasn't working right away. I actually got a call from the Department of Veterans Affairs and they said, hey, look, you know, we're connected with the base, obviously, over there. Uh, It was at the time the only um, VA facility that was connected to and on the same property as an Air Force hospital. So there was a really, really big connection through the two. So they called me and said, we we know you just got out. We, um, you know, we're a police department here on the property we'd love for you to come and apply and interview. And I thought, well, I'm not working right now. I hadn't really made, I hadn't made any jump to, you know, or, or had any thought to where I wanted to go and work, whether I wanted to stay in New Mexico or leave. <clears throat> so I went and interviewed and applied and got the job. But the day that I started was actually on nine 11. They called me in and they said, you know, Hey, we're, we're, doing the security lockdown. We need extra bodies. You're hired. Come in and, and, you know, we'll give you a uniform and your equipment and you can start working right away. And at the time, the, the VA police didn't carry firearms. There wasn't one facility in the United States or a territory that carried um, a firearm. It was a mace, a baton, and a radio. And not that many people knew that, um, we did, and we still had to do the job. So I did that job for about a month before I was called back into the military. And then when I came back and, and had that second honorable discharge, I went straight back to the VA and worked for several years there. Um, you know, and, and, and it was interesting. It was, it was a different kind of law enforcement. Like I said, there, there weren't any guns. It was really focused on community policing because we were working on a small area and we were dealing with patients and not only patients at a hospital, but, but veterans as I was. Uh, so we had that camaraderie and we had that bond with each other, which also still made it challenging to do at the same time, because unbeknownst to a lot of people, no matter where you are, crimes are committed. And you might, you know, some of the, some of the things that I had seen happening, never thought would happen where I worked. But I worked for that agency for several years and kind of transferred around a little bit before I ended up leaving and uh, going to the police department where where I was at the time of, of my shooting. So in an agency where you don't have a firearm, so you're relying a lot more on hands-on, you know, um, de-escalation and, and force if needed, what kind of training did you get there? Um, you know, uh, well, back then, verbal judo was a big thing, and I'm sure a lot of the... I, maybe they even teach that now today. Um, I've heard some people mutter about it here and there. But you're right, verbal de-escalation was a big part of it. Um, you know, I only had, and I never used my baton once when I was working there, uh, or my pepper spray. Um, it was either verbal de-escalation or hands-on um, type of use of force, and which, which I liked more because I, I feel like I could control that, you know, I could control that much better. The academy, I don't think, I think it's probably much different now than it was then. It was only about a month long. Um, and I think one of the reasons it was is because most of us, if not all of us in my academy class for that specific agency, 
had prior law enforcement experience and we were just changing things up a little bit. So I, I really fell back a lot on the training I had had before in the Air Force. But not only that, I think a lot of what we do successfully is common sense. I don't believe a lot of, I don't believe everyone possesses that. But some of the things that I had been through as a teen and a young adult, some of my own struggles, I, you know, even throughout the rest of my career, played a big role in how I dealt with certain situations and how I helped other people. So the verbal de-escalation part never created an issue for me. I was always, I always had the knack to, to talk to people and to relate to them on their level, no matter what, you know, their background is or where they came from. And I, I mean, make no mistake about it. I, I grew up in an affluent area of Massachusetts, you know, so I don't, I don't deal with a lot of things that, that other people have. But I was always, always able to, and, and still today, very proud of the fact that I could get on anyone's level and really connect with them in a way that I haven't seen many other police officers do over my, you know, the span of my 20-year career. So, like I said, we didn't have a whole lot of training. Some of what we did have bolstered what I already knew and what I already carried with me in my, in my virtual tool belt. But, um, you know, I, I, I think, and I think that, that, that played more of a factor than any of the training that I had to begin with and, and to work in an agency where we didn't carry firearms and we'd sometimes go to scary things where we probably could have used one, you know, later on before I left that agency, we ended up getting, everyone ended up carrying firearms Everyone, you know, was getting certified and more training and this and that. So it was something that evolved. Um, it was only probably about the first year that I worked there. They were already, you know, the pilot program was already kind of getting off the ground. But even after getting one, I didn't, I didn't use it, you know. And, and I think just the way I was able to talk to people and treat them with respect, I think, is, is a huge thing. Um, really was a benefit to me throughout, not just then, but my entire career. Yeah, that's definitely a common denominator I've heard from several of the law enforcement men and women that have been on the show is that. And I know even as a fireman, like I remember, you know, dealing with, with people that we went on, whether they were medical patients or, you know, civilians on a scene. Um, it's just that, you know, you can, you can, how you react dictates how many of these scenes are going to go. And you can definitely deescalate with some empathy, with some compassion. You know, with, 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 you know, going, crouching down, sitting down, getting someone's eye level, whatever it is. And obviously we're, we're a different animal in the fire service. We're not expecting anyone to attack us. You know, you guys definitely have more of a threat on scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely that element. And, and you're right. It seems like a lot of the police officers that I've had on that seem to do their job well. That is definitely a part of it. Not all of it, but definitely a part of it is that that's your first go to is, is, you know, trying to to bring the emotions back down to where they're you know at a calm level and then you can actually get to the bottom of whatever it is you're trying to mitigate right absolutely i mean it's it's a different world out there now because like you mentioned firefighters uh, typically wouldn't go to a scene in a you know a medical scene or, or a fire scene and expect to be attacked by anyone and these days firefighters and emts are wearing bulletproof vests and helmets and, you know, things have certainly changed. And it's uh, sometimes I just I don't even believe what I'm seeing. Yeah. No, I had a, a few guests on the show that have been attacked. One, Ben Vernon, was uh, one of the two San Diego firefighters that was stabbed 
Um, and it, yeah, horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, well, while we're on the subject, I think this is a good kind of point in the interview to to interject this. What are your opinions of what you saw with the George George Floyd case that just happened with the um, the police officer kneeling on his neck till he died? So knowing that um, you and I were going to be talking today and seeing how that happened on Tuesday, I had a pretty good feeling that we would talk about this, and uh, that's perfectly fine. And the one thing I've been saying to people over the last – I didn't comment about it right away. I didn't watch the video right away. I just – I didn't want to. I'm not – I'm a former member of the profession. I don't consider myself a police officer. I'm not even retired. Um, I just don't do the job anymore. Going through something like what I did, my wife feels the same way. There's a big part of us that don't want to think about it. And so it took me a bit to kind of muster up the courage to even watch the video. And it was everywhere. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't scroll down Facebook or Instagram or Twitter for more than five minutes without seeing four or five or six or seven posts with that video or some sort of news article on it. So I thought, okay, well, I mean, I have an opinion and maybe some people want to hear it. Maybe some people don't. So I watched the video and it absolutely disgusted me. And what I've said most to people is that the moment, the absolute second we put handcuffs on anybody, that person is our responsibility. That person is our responsibility medically, their well-being, psychologically, and again, medically is our, should be our utmost concern. They are, like I said, they are our biggest responsibility because we've taken their freedom away, right? It's already a big deal to take someone's freedom away from them and say, you're under arrest for whatever it is. And placing handcuffs on you, in the very moment I do, you are unable to take care of yourself because your hands are behind your back. I understand I've used a lot of force in my career. You've had to. I mean, you have to use the amount of force necessary to affect an arrest. But at the moment that person is in custody is when the force ends. You stop using any sort of force whatsoever. I, I watched, though, in this video, a police officer, a former police officer now, use force with, uh, with his knee on the back of his neck for at least 10 minutes when the video started. And I don't know how long it lasted before the video started. Um, the George lost consciousness as far as I could tell, uh, within maybe five or six minutes of me watching the video and you could tell. So, I mean, I'm disgusted today. I've been disgusted since I watched the video. I, I, I've arrested a lot of people, thousands of people. And no matter what they did to me, whether they ran, whether they, and I'll bring this up later on because it's going to come into play with what we're talking about with my shooting. Um, you know, whether they spit on me, whether they, you know, um, called me a, a bad name, whether they said something negative about my wife who they didn't know or my mother, because people say things in situations like that. Once the handcuffs go on, everything is over. They can talk all the shit they want. They can say whatever they want to me. The force is, you know, the force is over. You, you stop doing it and, uh, and you take care of that person. 
and and if they're telling you that they're suffering from a medical episode, whether you believe that that's a legitimate thing or it's not, because I have a lot of people fake things, but you check just to make sure because that is, you know, them living and, and going to jail uninjured or as uninjured as they can be after using force is your, that's your, that should be your number one priority. So I could probably go on for hours talking about, you know, how upset I am about it. And, you know, this has created such, such a, an, an incredible amount of backlash. And, and really what it, what it amounts to is it's going to further the divide before law enforcement in the black community. And really, all the communities, you know, um, there's a lot of people that have doubt for us in the be- in, in the in the beginning already, um, but it's going to make every police officer's job, every good police officer's job from here on out, that much more difficult and that much more dangerous. And there's <clears throat> way more good people out there doing the job than there are bad, but nobody's going to differentiate from that because all they're going to see is a uniform and a badge. Yeah, no, and then I I align completely with yours. And what's been What's been good, at least about this case, you know, and, it's, and again, firstly, you have a, a lot of a lot of video, a lot of footage, so no one can say, "Ah, oh, but that was only fifteen seconds before X happened," because sometimes it's you like, okay, well, that completely changes the context. But this is a person you see them begging for their own life. You see bystanders saying, "You know, uh, you know they're not breathing. Check their pulse." I mean, all these people are giving them all these, you know, hints and clues and. And uh, so I'm like, all right, well, let me put it into a fire medic perspective. I've been called every curse word under the sun, every racial slur, despite my very pale skin tone, I've been called every racial slur um, and, uh, you know, been spat on and, and slashed at. And, you know, I mean, you name it, all kinds of stuff. And there's times where we have to medicate them or we posy them, tie them to the stretcher. But I'm still the responsible for their breathing, you know, even though they've been a complete shitbag to me. It doesn't matter. That's why you wear the badge on your chest because you're the kind of man or woman that can rise above that. Sorry about my dog barking in the background. Um, and you know that's why it's called a profession. You're not a reaction. You're you're a professional that can rise above it. And that crew, those those men, completely disregarded all responsibility from what I can see. Not only as a, a police officer, but as a as a compassionate human being as well. And so, like you said, it's it's tragic. Because it is going to separate this polarizing that, again, is two extremes arguing while the middle 95% are doing their job and actually protecting people of all colors and creeds. Um, but what has been good is this case has made seemingly almost everyone stand up. You know, so many of my guests, special forces, you know, men and women and police officers and all, all types to say this is wrong, you know, and, and that's been a good thing to see because there's always that kind of gray wishy-washy um mentality around this and and people are like no this is bullshit this is this is uh, this shouldn't be just oh they got fired this should be murder case in my opinion 100% but this also then hopefully will pull out the scum who still defend that kind of actions and highlight them too like no this is what a racist looks like if you if you look at that video and you think that they did anything right and that any of that was justified that that man lost his life those are the people we need to start highlighting as scourge of society because you cannot defend those actions. No, they absolutely shouldn't be a part of the profession. I mean, look, there's nearly a million police officers spread out all over this country. And I'll say it now, I'll say it again. I've said it before. 
a majority of them are good people with empathy and compassion. You mentioned compassion, and that is a huge part of the job. I I didn't do the job, especially later on in my career. I didn't. I did the job to help others that couldn't help themselves, and that included people that hated me. That included people that cussed at me and called me names. And I can't say sit here and say that it didn't bother me. I mean, you know, if somebody time and time again, it happened F your mother. Um, I can't say that that wouldn't bother me. Of course it's going to bother anybody, but I'm certainly not going to treat them with a level of disrespect. (coughs) Excuse me. That, I mean, that would end up hurting them physically, you know, or, or, or damaging my case. I mean, look, we're all on camera all the time. I mean, if you're if you're an a-hole out there doing this job and, and you want to hurt people and that's what you're setting out to do, which is what it looked like this guy was doing, this officer was doing, um, I mean, know that you're – he had to know that he was being filmed. I mean, there was probably 10 people holding cameras up and, and pointing at you. Just at that point, be a decent person. It's not about your job. It's not about your badge. It's not about the uniform you wear. Just be a decent human being at that point. Sit the guy up. And anybody in this position, sit them up, maybe get them a bottle of water, pour it. It's hot too. Pour it on their head, you know, make sure that the, the EMS gets there as quick as they can and, and take care of them. I mean, it's, it's about empathy, compassion. It's about being decent. It's about taking care of the people that, that you don't arrest. It's about taking care of the people you do arrest. We're not out here. We shouldn't be out here to intentionally or even unintentionally inflict pain or or kill anybody it's just i i will i have been playing that video over and over again in in my mind since i watched it and i just honestly i mean you try to be objective about it because that's what they teach you in the academy and that's what they they beat into your head over and over again when you're a police officer is objective objectivity objective you know objective reasonableness you know, and part of me can do that with this, but man, it just, I mean, it hurts watching it. It hurts even just replaying it over my head. And what hurts even more is a lot of people will hear this and a, a, a good amount of them won't believe what I'm saying because I'm connected to the profession because I've done it for as long as I have. They just won't believe me because they won't believe any of us. And, um, you know, I'm to a lot of them, I'm, I'm not allowed to have an opinion that mirrors theirs. Um, but I hope enough of us will stand up and speak out about what happened and speak out about, you know, other instances that may be just as um, deliberate as this. So it's, it's just a sad situation all around. And I hope there's, uh, you know, some change that comes from it. I hope it's not change that will get more officers injured because that is a potential outcome and a risk. Um, but to keep something like this from happening again, um, you know, there's got to be some discussion. There's got to be talks. I don't think there needs to be riots, but there has to be, you know, things that are positive, um, you know, that affect positive uh, change moving forward. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And the problem that we have, I think, a lot with with many situations in in society is you get the two extremes wanting to be the loudest voice and then nothing gets changed. A perfect example would be the school shootings. You got the pro gun, you got the anti gun, and meanwhile, nothing's actually getting achieved. No one's addressing mental health, child abuse, you know, um, the, the 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 overall wellness of children in our society. And when they're done fighting about guns or whatever it is, then 
we go back to the norm. Nothing has changed at all. So it's the same with this. We need to look at, you know, the hiring practices. We need to look at the level of training. You know, we look at, you know, um, the, the community relationship between that department and, you know, and the men and women and then children in their community. You know, there's so many elements that we can affect. But if we just bitch and whine at each other, nothing ever gets achieved you just got to to be on fox or cnn for a fucking 15 minutes get your your fame and then everything goes back to normal absolutely sad yeah all right well um moving on to your law enforcement career um lead me through you know what it was like going from the military to now being out in the the civilian community um you know i honestly i can't say there was much of a transition it, you know, I, I think at the time when I left the military and, and left the federal government and ended up working <clears throat> for for the civilian agency, I mean, it was other than <clears throat> dealing with a new set of standard operating procedures and a, a different set of leadership and, and meeting different people uh, that I was working with. Um, you know, I I don't think there there was much difficulty for me. I think that the biggest transition was the fact that I. I was working on in an Indian reservation and here I am like you, a fairly pale person um, being white and now working for and taking care of a population of people who haven't maybe had the best past with people like me. And not only that, learning a new area, it was very rural. Um, there were no street signs. There were no house numbers on houses. And even if they were, the people that lived there would typically take them off so that uh, we couldn't get to their house in a timely manner if something happened. So I don't think, like I mentioned, the transition was, it wasn't like, it wasn't a difficult process for me. It was just a, it was a learning process. I think gaining the trust of the people that I worked for was probably the biggest thing for me. And even that didn't take long and it wasn't very difficult for me because I, I feel like I was, I was very genuine about what I was doing and I was very methodical about making sure people understood why I was there and, and you know, why I was doing certain things. So <clears throat> ultimately, that was a great experience working where I, where I was working and, and uh, the people really sort of took me in as one of their own, which is, was pretty amazing. So... I haven't really had many people that have been involved in um, you know, reservations as far as a responder. So tell me some of the pros and some of the co- the cons of working you know, within that kind of city dynamic. It's very spread out and there's not a lot of officers working at one time. It's very dark. There's not many street lights, which can be kind of crazy when, you know, there were, I was working a lot of the time I was there, a very large portion of uh, a major interstate, uh, interstate 40 coming from Los Angeles, basically all the way to the East coast. And we had a a large portion of that to cover. And for a, a good portion of the time that I was working there, I was what was called a highway safety unit. So, um, I think the, the fact that, like I mentioned, it was spread out and there was maybe three to four officers on duty at any given time. And a lot of times I was working by myself. Um, you know, we'd, we'd look at like a swing shift, which would be, I think, when I was working there, two to ten 
or, um, you know, whether it was a 10 hour shift or an eight hour shift, it, it, it varied, but I'd be taking burglaries and domestic violence and major, major car crashes and <clears throat> having to deal with attempt to locate on vehicles. I mean, you were doing literally everything on your own also with maybe, um, a backup unit from the New Mexico state police that might've been 20 or 30 minutes away. So dealing with all of those things by yourself, not only really toughens you up, makes you somewhat fearless in a sense, because you know, you have to do it no matter what, you don't have a choice. Somebody's calling for help. You have to go, whether you're going by yourself or with 10 people. Um, that was a challenge, but, um, but it was a good challenge, I think for me, because, Everything I've done, I think, leading up to what we're going to get to in the conversation prepared me for, for that situation. So, um, so yeah, the transition wasn't very difficult. I mean, going from a military member to a civilian is kind of difficult because you're like, oh, my gosh, for the last four or five years, I've had everything kind of mapped out for me. Everyone's always told me where to go or what to do. And now I'm sort of free and I can do what I want, even working patrol uh, where I worked on the reservation. I kind of just came into work and did wherever I want. I went wherever I wanted to go, whenever I wanted to go there, unless I had a call for service. So that was kind of a weird thing, but uh, one that I think I got used to fairly quickly. Yeah. So you're also very vulnerable though, working working with such low staffing. What what was the, the underlying reason behind that? Was the, the reservation poor fiscally or... Um, not necessarily. I think the reservation I worked for and the government I worked for was where they were pretty, pretty self-sufficient as far as their finances went. They owned a lot of things, not even, you know, things in other, other states as well. Um, we had a couple casinos and a couple, you know, actually quite a few gas stations, uh, restaurants and, and things that made quite a bit of money. So we actually had a decent sized budget and we also worked quite a bit on, on federal grants. Um, you know, a lot of departments will apply for grants, federal grants for things, and not get them. I don't honestly know of any or, or very, very many grants that we applied for that we didn't get, whether it was for staffing or, or cars or other equipment, um, uniforms, whatever it was, we, we always ended up seeming to get it. Staffing, it was hard to hire. Because obviously, you know, in an area like that, they want to hire people who are from that reservation first. So they want to hire the native Americans that, that are born and raised in that reservation. They know the people, they know the area and they automatically obviously can be trusted, but, but they like any other government entity has to be an equal opportunity employer. So if somebody like me would apply, they'd still have to look at me and, and look at my qualifications, um, interview me and, and whatnot. Now, if it came up to me and somebody else from the reservation who had equal amount of training and experience and knowledge, the person that was from there would get the job. But there weren't very many people that could apply for the police department and be hired, whether they had a criminal record, whether they drank too much, because we all know and and hear the stories, and maybe it's not as rampant as people think in all the areas, um, you know, Sure, we dealt with things like that, but not really any more than anyone else. But, you know, one way or another, they couldn't qualify for the job. Domestic violence, things of that nature. So, <clears throat> I mean, 
it was an interesting, you know, it was an interesting hiring process. And, and I mean, I basically got hired and started right away and was, was on field training for a short amount of time. And it was then out on my own, um, before they ended up sending me to the Academy. We do, you know, we were able to work, um, as an uncertified person for an amount of time before we go to the Academy and get certified. So, um, it was, it was interesting, but I mean, it was not where I thought I was going to end up in my life and where I was going to work. Um, I, I feel like not only law enforcement being a calling, but I think working there was a calling for me because it was a smaller community, maybe five to 7,000 residents, um, not including anybody that visited or traveled through on a daily basis, which is probably 100,000, 150,000, I don't know, maybe even more than that cars a day would drive through uh, my jurisdiction. But uh, I could really treat people as if they were people and, and not just a case number. And that really afforded me the opportunity to really kind of to, to care for people and to follow through with, with their cases or whatever happened and, and, and um, you know, see them afterwards and, and watch how they've grown and recovered from whatever it was that happened to them. So it was, uh, the experience was, was second to none. Brilliant. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Obviously, you know, you're probably one of the smallest departments, you know, that anyone's worked for they've had on the show. But one thing, again, this is coming from a firefighter who's never ever been in law enforcement, but a perspective I have is, you know, say LA, for example, they ride two to a car, um, is how vulnerable a single officer is in a car. And obviously this will tie into to the the incident in a moment. But I I kind of parallel it to we have fire engines, fire trucks that are, you know, paid, but there's only two, two, two personnel assigned to that station. So they have to take that aerial, for example, you know, with, with a ladder, respond to a house. Someone might be hanging off a window and they've got to do all that with two people and, you know, maintain what we call two out, which is impossible. So yes, you can physically have bodies in the station. You can get a vehicle to a fire. Doesn't mean that you're going to be effective. You know, through no fault of their own, they just don't have enough people. And I really feel like the law enforcement in America, specifically when there's so many weapons, you know, legally allowed to be carried in this country, that the the minimum standard should be two to a car. That I think would would help in the violence against the citizens that we see sometimes, because these people are vulnerable and fighting for their life. These these responders, and also mm-hmm. to be able to defend the responders too. I, yeah, you brought up a good point too. We, I mean, we dealt with that with the fire department that we had and about the time that I was leaving, um, we were, we were department of public safety. So the fire department, EMS, uh, emergency management, police department were all under kind of one roof really. And the, uh, the director that we had at the time that I went to work there, um, was retired from the state police and he was you know, really good at bringing kind of the, the public safety department to where we needed to be, even being a smaller. And we were small, but we were, I mean, towards the end, we had about 40 sworn police officers. We had um, two working fire stations working on a third. And, you know, we were starting to create substations for the police department in different areas. And we spanned you know, a linear jurisdiction of about 40 to 50 miles along the interstate and we had, you know, a casino on on one very tip of our jurisdiction, just, I mean, with an Albuquerque address. And then we had to the west, 50 miles later, our westernmost village where we would, you know, uh, patrol and be responsible for calls for service and emergencies. 
and things in between north and south. So like I said, spread out, it was hundreds of thousands of square miles of jurisdiction that we had. A majority of it was open space. So we had a pretty robust conservation department who were sworn law enforcement officers who could, you know, cross work from um, their conservation duties to law enforcement duties if we needed them. So we could call them out of the back country. They could work uh, traffic control for crashes. They could work, you know, looking for somebody that, you know, that had committed a felony. Um, so that was really great. Um, but I mean, I have in my career working there, kicked doors in of houses that were fully involved, you know, fires and grabbed a fire hose and helped the firefighters put out fires, whether it be a brush fire or a structure fire, like I mentioned, without an SCBA, without any, you know, without any bunker gear, I'm telling you, kicking in doors and running into to houses that are on fire, making sure nobody's in them and, um, you know, helping them put the fire out. And it's no different from any other police officer that would, you know, they would, they, they would do this anywhere if they had to. Um, sometimes we get to fire scenes like that before the fire department does, because we're already there. But <clears throat> the way that it would happen in my jurisdiction was just, it was just a different feeling. You're in the middle of nowhere, basically, you know what I mean? And, and a lot of people don't have cell service at their home. They don't have internet. They don't have running water. And here we are, like I said, as a police officer kicking doors in and putting fires out. And um, I mentioned before when I was younger, I kind of wanted to be a firefighter. And there that was. I sort of put the fire out, if so to speak, on that um, kind of dream of mine I had when I was younger because I could do it at the same time. And uh, so my job wasn't just policing. My job was, was literally doing everything else that I could do. You know, I was called to take snakes out of bathtubs and, and you know, just – I mean, the, the, the myriad of things that, that we had to do out there alone um, or with two or three other people was it was pretty amazing. And uh, I mean, something that I always look back on and have fond memories. Yeah, no, we definitely, definitely checked a lot of boxes in that career. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, then let's fast forward then to March 24th of 2016. So it actually started March 23rd. Uh, this was all between like 1130 and midnight, maybe just after midnight. And depending on who you look at, you know, what, what media article you look at or, or who you talk to, it'll vary. For years, I thought, oh, you know, March 23rd, it happened just before midnight. And then I look at the FBI paperwork and it happened on March 24th. So I celebrate in a live day sort of on both days. But uh, I was at work. Again, I was a traffic officer, so... I was responsible for starting my shift at 7 p.m. each night. I think it was a Tuesday going into Wednesday. And I was tired. I didn't feel well. We were getting ready to move. My wife and I had, um, we were getting ready to move into a house in Albuquerque from our apartment. And so my mother-in-law, um, were she was visiting from Texas. They were living in Texas at the time. She was in town helping us pack and and get ready to move. <clears throat> I think it was like within a week or two, we were going to move. So I remember spending that day. Now, again, I worked 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. So I get home at about 3, 15, 3, 30 every morning, get in bed by four. And I'd sleep till, I didn't really sleep that much, maybe till nine or 10 every day. And I'd go to the gym and I'd come home. And nothing, nothing was very different this day. Um, except coming home, I, I was spending that time with my mother-in-law, who I'm very close with, even still today, more so. 
and we were packing things up and we were talk just talking about life. <clears throat> and um, so it came time, you know, I had to get ready for work. And typically on a day that I worked, my wife would be coming in the door as I was getting ready to leave. She would come home about six o'clock and, and at the time she was working, she's a community manager for multifamily housing. That's what she does now. And she was doing this at the time as well. So she'd have pretty full days, busy days. I wouldn't talk to her much and she'd come home. And we really only had a minute or two each night before my shift to, you know, give her a kiss. We'd sit down and talk for maybe five minutes. I would already be in uniform. My car would be out in the parking lot warming up and then I would jump in the car and I would leave. And so this was a typical night, typical day. I went to work. I said I wasn't really feeling that well. I was kind of tired. Um, it was really, honestly, it was the start of my week too. I think I worked like Sunday through Thursday or, or Sunday through, well, yeah, I think it was Sunday, Sunday through Thursday. So I got into work and I went straight to the police department because I think I had a busy night the night before. So I, I did actually, I recovered a stolen car the night before and I didn't finish all the paperwork. So I knew I needed to go to the police department and uh, complete the paperwork before I went out on the road. So I remember doing that. And I'm at the police department. I think I talked to my wife uh, just after I left, which was maybe close to about, it took me a while to get all the paperwork squared away. I think I left about nine or 10 o'clock that night. So it was roughly halfway into my shift. I finally finished all the paperwork. Uh, I, I drove a, a marked police car. And like I mentioned, like in Florida, um, I know police officers have take-home cars in Florida. Majority of the agencies do. We had take-home cars. So I, I drove a slick top. Uh, Ford Taurus, one of the new interceptors. <clears throat> and um, it was marked that so had, you know, the big police on the side as well. And so I left and I thought, you know, like I said, I mentioned I, I recovered a stolen car before and the night before it was occupied as well. So we were able to to make an arrest. Typically, because of where, where that happened, it was at a casino that I mentioned earlier, was all the way in our eastern border of jurisdiction. And it was an Albuquerque address. So it bordered the city of Albuquerque. And it was within Bernalillo County, which is the county that encompasses Albuquerque as well. <clears throat> so Bernalillo County came out the night before too and assisted me, So, um, which they would often do on, on calls because they were typically the closest ones. So I, I left the police department and called my wife just to let her know I was done with the paperwork and I was going to head down to the casino. It was Route 66 Casino. Uh, it was a large casino. had a casino express at the gas station. It had a, uh, a, a rather large hotel. They were building on the backside, the south side of the hotel and casino, they were building uh, <clears throat> like an RV park with a pool and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and they were having a lot of theft. So I mentioned I'm a traffic officer, but if I got bored, <clears throat> I had the ability because I wasn't responsible for taking any calls for service other than traffic related calls. I had the ability to go to that area, which was, you know, kind of far away from all of our other uh, areas of responsibility. And I could, I could take a break, uh, quote unquote, if I wanted to, and I would check license plates for, you know, see if cars were stolen. There were quite a few calls for service down there as far as, um, you know, various property crimes outside of auto theft. Um, the, the construction down there was having a lot of thefts of generators and copper and things like that. That was big. Um, they had a lot of drug issues down there as far as meth and heroin and cocaine prostitution was an issue down there as well. And I felt like a lot of the time I worked where I worked that 
because it was so sort of out of the way of where everyone else was patrolling, it didn't get as much attention as the other areas did. So people were getting away with nearly everything down there. We couldn't catch them unless we had them on video. And, you know, people who are, who are drug users and committing those property crimes, they're very good at what they do. Um, they're very good at not getting caught. So I would divide some of my time each night and I would go down there, even if I didn't, um, you know, do a traffic stop or didn't make any contact with anybody, I would at least make my presence known and I would make sure that people saw that I was there to hopefully deter them from committing crimes. Because you have a hotel off of an interstate, a lot of people traveling from one state to the other are going to stop there. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they would have their cars broken into, their trailers broken into, their cars stolen, items stolen. And that's terrible, right? I mean, people work so I work, you know, I've worked so hard for the cars that we have and the stuff that we have. If one of them were to be stolen, it would be devastating, you know, to, to try and replace that. <clears throat> so this night was unlike a lot of those other nights. And I thought, okay, I want to go down there and run some license plates, see if I can get some stolen cars. And I told my dispatcher via telephone because our radios didn't work fantastically out there on the repeater we had. Um, so a, a lot of what I did was over the telephone while I was down there. I had run some license plates, um, you know, maybe done a couple traffic stops, nothing really, you know, crazy. Um, and at one point decided to take a short break and parked in one of the north parking lots. I had my lights off. I think I was just listening to the radio and eating. I think I was eating my sandwich. And um, <clears throat> I saw a car drive in. Have you ever watched the TV show Breaking Bad? Yes. So Breaking Bad is filmed in Albuquerque. Most people know that. And one of the scenes in Breaking Bad towards the beginning is filmed at the be at the entrance of the casino that I was sitting. It was under jurisdiction. And there's these huge neon light-up arrows that span the middle of the drive. There's one way in and one way out. <clears throat> and this is where the car was driving that I saw. The, you know, so the arrows were lighting up. You actually, you watch the video, you probably saw those arrows lighting up. But if you look back to one of the first episodes of Breaking Bad in first season, you see these arrows as well. So they're pretty iconic. You can see them from the highway. They're, they're huge. So the car is driving down that one way into the um, casino parking lot area. And they were going, it seemed <clears throat> to be, you know, uh, kind of at a high rate of speed, faster than cars typically travel into a parking lot. And that was the first thing that caught my eye. Second was the car was completely beat up. Um, it was just, looks like it had been in, involved in several crashes and it just wasn't taken care of. So, I mean, outside of that, again, the car looked like it was going kind of fast. So I thought, okay, well, let me maybe watch this car and see what they do. It was a Tuesday into a Wednesday, like I said, I think, and the it wasn't very busy. There were a few hundred cars in the parking lot between employees and visitors. So there's probably three to 450 people inside the casino in the hotel. And um, they drove to the back. They, 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 they indicated they were going to drive to the back parking lot of the casino, which is kind of strange in a night like that because there's plenty of parking in front. So uh, you had a little bit of reasonable, reasonable suspicion, you know, you, you, the, the hair stands up on the back of your neck a little bit. So I decided to turn my headlights on. My car is already running. I put it in drive and kind of got into a position where I could, I could watch where they were going. 
But if it was really nothing, I wouldn't unnecessarily kind of spook them. You know what I mean? Because I didn't want to make them feel like, well, I'm doing nothing. We're just coming to the casino and, and this cop is, you know, he's just following us around. Why is he doing that? So, uh, you know, I didn't want to be blatantly obvious about it. But I also wanted to maybe see if I could get the plate number and run the plate through dispatch and see what it came back as. So they entered the back parking lot of the casino, and, and I did, did as well behind them, uh, quite a bit of distance behind them, though. And I lost sight of them. They were going through one part of the parking lot I couldn't see. Um, I decided, I thought, well, maybe I'll stop. I'll turn my lights off. Uh, again, I didn't really want to be incredibly you know, easy to detect. <clears throat> and I'll wait to see. When they walk into the casino, maybe I'll check the plate then and see what it comes back to. So I stopped and stopped for, it felt like several minutes. And even to this day, I'm not sure how long it was. But again, it felt like it was quite a long time. I didn't see anybody walk in. And I have a per- perfect view from the parking lot to the back entrance of the casino. And um, so I thought, all right, well, I'll turn my headlights on and I'll, I'll go to the back door area of the casino, sort of this big overhang big obnoxious neon route 66 sign out front and I'll see where they are. So as I'm approaching that area, I had my binoculars out because it's just easier in a lot of ways to get license plates through the binoculars and not get, you know, have to drive right up on cars. I saw, I looked to my left before I stopped and I saw the car backing into a space, which was also, you know, suspicious to me because there's a lot of open parking in New Mexico. We didn't require front license plates on the cars. So it seemed like they were backing into a parking space in between a few cars. They found a cluster of cars that were parked there. And it seemed to me like they were going to try and conceal the license plate, which is in fact what they were doing. So I had my binoculars out, had, you know, dispatch on the line. I got the plate number. I gave it to her over the phone. It was, nearly a brand new dispatcher at the time, a uh, young girl, like 23 at the time, I think she was. So I gave her the plate number and sure enough, it comes back as it's stolen out of Albuquerque. So at that point, you know, I'm really sort of ready at this point. And I, I before I got to follow her and I said, start me some backup units, whether it's from our agency or the sheriff's department, state police, whoever it needs to be, whoever can get down here fast enough, excuse me. So, we hang up the phone and I sit there and I'm waiting thinking, you know, what do you, what do I do? I'm by myself. I'm waiting for backup. Typically in a situation like this, this would be a felony traffic stop if they were driving. It's still a felony type situation because it's a stolen car. Stolen cars are often, you know, uh, associated with guns or, or, you know, narcotics. So I know these things. I've been a cop for a long time at the, at the point, at this point, And I know, I know that's what happens. So I evaluate how they're parking. They're not quite yet getting out of the car. Do I go over there, pull my car in a, in a, you know, put my car in a position where they can't get out. And then I'm also, I've also got cover and concealment behind the engine block in case something happens. Do I drive off and wait for them to go in the casino, wait for my backup and address it at that point inside the casino or what do I do? Excuse me. So I have a couple minutes to think about this. And then my decision comes in the form of two people getting out of the car. I didn't know if there was one person in the car, two people in the car, five people in the car. 
Turns out there were two people in the car. The windows were very tinted. I couldn't get that close anyways the entire time, you know? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So they exit the car and they start walking towards me. And at this point, I feel like I have to address it. I can't drive off. I can't wait for backup. I didn't feel comfortable with them walking into the casino, not knowing who they were and, and what the situation was. All I knew is that they were in possession of a stolen car and that they could potentially be dangerous. <clears throat> so as they're walking towards me, I exited my car. <clears throat> I, at the same time, I would keep my body camera off typically to conserve a battery. So I turned it on uh, and then hit the record button, had to hit the record button twice to get it to engage. <clears throat> and I pulled my firearm at the same time as well. Like I mentioned, this is a felony situation. So, you know, we're at our highest, um, you know, our, our senses are, we're just, we're ready to go for anything. So <clears throat> I come from behind a pillar where that was sort of concealing me. As soon as I come from behind the pillar, I point my handgun at the two of them. Um, I start ordering them to the ground. I'm in uniform. I'm displaying my badge of, badge of office. I'm in a marked police car. I'm doing everything I need to do. <clears throat> ordering them to the ground. One of them, the, the subject on, on my left, their right, immediately turns around and runs. Uh, south back towards the car so now i'm in the situation where oh shit you know it's something's gonna happen and i've dealt with things by myself before i did not doubt my my ability to do this so he runs but now not only do i have to focus attention on the one subject who's still there but i have to focus my attention on where did this other guy go did he go to the car is he going to get a weapon is he just running away to get away what's going on now, I have my portable radio, but again, a lot of the times where I'm at, it wouldn't reach the repeater to get to the dispatch, so I didn't even, I couldn't even use it. Uh, I knew it already called for backup. They were going to be responding code three no matter what, which is lights and sirens. So I knew somebody was going to be in route. So now, I'm like I said, I'm dividing my attention to both the subject who was in front of me and the subject who ran. I can't see the subject who ran anymore. That's scary in and of itself. And the subject who's in front of me, find sort of this platform for this raised uh, landscaping platform and he sits down and um, his hands are not visible to me. I don't, I, I don't remember if they were in his pockets or what he had a pretty, pretty baggy jacket on. I didn't carry a taser at the time. Uh, we were just in the, in the midst of getting those, those deployed to us um, though. I was, I was certified already, but so he's sitting down, big jacket on, uh, like a sweat jacket, shorts. It's March, late March, so it's still sort of cold at night uh, in Albuquerque, kind of windy. <clears throat> and I remember it being very clear. Um, but he's just looking straight ahead. He's not even, not even looking at me, not even acknowledging that I'm there. Now, later on, obviously, I've been able to watch the video, and some things are a little bit different than what I remember, um, but really not that much. So that, that made me very aware as well because he's not looking at me. I'm ordering to the ground and he's not listening. He's not doing what I'm telling him to do. When people don't do what you tell them to do in a situation like that, it's typically going to end up you're using force against that person and it may end up bad. I know these things going into it and I'm walking towards him as my handgun is still out, but I'm keeping my weapon retention. I'm bringing my weapon back into me 
um, one-handed with it because I'm now getting closer and closer to him and I'm bringing my firearm closer and closer into my body to keep it away from him and, and make sure that I'm able to grab him, put him to the ground and make sure that he can't grab my weapon. I do this. I grab him by about the shoulder area of his jacket and I, and I, and I put him on the ground. He assisted me, however, when I did that, because it was very easy for, and I'm a, I was always a strong guy, but I'm not, uh, you had Tim Kennedy on your show. I'm, I'm no Tim Kennedy. Um, you know, I, I, I worked out, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I was never a huge muscular guy. So this shouldn't have been as easy for me to do as it was. And later on, I'll tell you why this happened. But anyways, he lands on his back, which is where we don't want them. We want subjects like this on their stomach. So I get on top of them with the limited amount of uh, ground fighting training that, that I had at the time, it was enough to know I had to get on top of them, get in the full mount and maintain that control of them. So in the meantime, I put my handgun away, but I didn't close the hood on it. I didn't, I didn't, it locked in, but I didn't close the, the thumb brake hood. So, so if I needed it again, I could grab it either way. It wouldn't have made a difference because I was trained enough to get it out, you know, regardless but it was just something i did um that i remember specifically doing now i'm on top of him and i'm telling him to get on his stomach and i'm yelling him and i'm telling him you know i'm giving him every order in the book to to do what i need him to do on top of still looking to the south making sure that this other guy isn't going to come back and try to kill me he won't go on his stomach. Uh, at one point, I pulled my pepper spray out and I, I pepper sprayed him. I was only able to um, affect his left eye. And I remember this because I could see the left side of his face turn bright orange almost from the, the pepper spray. As I was pepper spraying him, he hit my, my right hand, which is what I was holding my pepper spray with. And I sort of was knocked off center to my right and I dropped my pepper spray can and simultaneously as I'm coming back on center without seeing anything, without knowing anything, my left hand went down to his waist and I grabbed onto what I believed at the time was a pistol that was being pulled out of his waist area. And I did not have gloves on. Um, ideally I think I would have liked to, but this is something that probably, uh, you know, it obviously worked in my advantage, um, because I could, you know, it takes you a second to, to, to register this, to realize what's going on. And my hand is around this pistol that he's bringing up off of his waist and it's cold. I can, I can kind of feel the barrel and I could feel scratches in the frame of the pistol. And it was so vivid to me. I mean, I could feel, it felt like every scratch in this, in this firearm because I was describing this to investigators later on. I, I asked them, I said, was the pistol really beat up? And they said, yes, it was really beat up and it was old. And I told them, I said, yes, I could feel gouges and scrapes and all kinds of stuff, just all these irregularities in the gun. But like I said, it took me a couple seconds, maybe a split second, honestly, to realize that this was a pistol and that I was either going to die or I was going to have to kill him or both. And I'm pushing at this point the gun as hard as I can 
with my left hand and all the weight I can muster to get on this thing back into his stomach as I reach back with my right hand to pull my my weapon out and start firing shots. I mean, I'm talking point blank. I just the job needed to be done. I didn't want to die, not over a stolen car. I didn't want anyone to die over a stolen car, but I certainly was going to make it home at some point. <clears throat> so pull my weapon out and I say, uh, or I thought I just said I'm, I'm going to shoot you or something. I'm going to fucking shoot you. And just diverting that little bit of attention away from my left hand and the gun that he was holding, he was able to twist it out of my grasp. And I knew this was happening. And I think I started to sort of push off of him to go backwards because you can see in the video that I do move backwards and then the shot happens. And so as I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping back and the bullet hits me and it hit me with such force, uh, my left hip area, right where your leg creases kind of to your abdomen. It goes, it enters through there and it fractures my pelvis. And unbeknownst to me at the time, it goes and lands right into my sacrum area, my L5S1 on my spine. <clears throat> and it causes obviously the most immense amount of pain I've ever felt in my life and the burning from the nerve damage and my, I mean, I'm talking my, my back, my entire left leg, my foot, it was instant. It just destroyed nerve, sciatic nerve, um, iliac nerve. It just destroyed them. And now it's in my lower spine where all the nerves come out of your, your spinal cord. And I'm laying, I hit the, I hit the ground hard on my back. And I remember my right elbow hitting the pavement first and I was holding my, you know, still holding my pistol. I had it out. Um, I, I, I don't even think I had gotten my finger on the trigger, but I, I hit my elbow so hard and, and that's still scarred today. And I'm laying there and, and as I'm laying there, remember all this happened within seconds. Um, he gets up and he tries to run away, but he trips on me on my, on my feet and legs I didn't know this part until later on when I was able to watch the video, but he trips on my feet and legs and, and he's able to get back up and start running. Now, for some reason, I mean, everything sort of your training takes over, everything takes over. I don't, you don't even, you know, you don't even think about what you're doing. Although you have this conscious thought of, <clears throat> he just tried to kill me. He's trying to get away and I can't allow that because this is now going to put other people in danger potentially. Starts running towards the car that they came into and, you know, what is he trying to get? Is he just trying to get away? You just, you don't know. So I tried to get back up and I couldn't move because I thought I was paralyzed at the time. The tingling, everything was so bad. I just thought, well, I'm fucked. I'm laying here. I can't get up. I've got to, I've got to just, I've got to handle this the way, any, you know, any way I can. So I extended my, my arm and my hand, with, you know, I was holding the pistol and, and I, you know, got as good of a sight picture as I felt I could get on my gun and started shooting and <clears throat> I shot and I shot, I shot, you know, two rounds here. I yelled because people, people were walking out of the casino as we were fighting before I got shot. So they witnessed literally everything. And so they were running up to me as well, you know, asking me if I had been shot and, and, you know, um, obviously extending assistance to me. And so I'm shooting and, you know, I take a couple shots and I would yell to them, call 911. 
because I couldn't at the time get on my radio and, um, you know, call an ambulance. I'm shot, you know, just random. I'm in shock sort of things. So like I said, I would take a couple shots, pause, take a couple more shots, pause. I take three shots and pause. I take one shot, I pause, you know, and, and he's running this time to his car. He gets to the, I remember sort of seeing him at the driver's side door of the car, still on my side. So I, I still could see him very well. And he's opening the door and, and um, trying to get back in. And I keep shooting. At this point, I'm able to sort of roll to my right. I also had all the gear on. My holster was limiting my movement as well as, you know, all the tingling and all the pain. But I was able to sort of roll to my right side and rest my handgun um, on the pavement and fire a few more shots. And I ended up, all in all, I fired 20 shots and hit him four times. As soon as I realized, and this is where we go back to what we were talking about before with the incident in Minneapolis on Tuesday, as soon as I realized and could comprehend that the subject was down and I knew or thought I knew that he was not a threat anymore, I stopped shooting. And this is where you go into use of force with situations like I mentioned happened in Minneapolis. Once you know that person, whether they're, resi- you know, if they're resisting like they say, this guy, this poor guy was the other day. Um, they're resisting. Once they stop resisting, you stop using force, right? So the knee on the neck was the force that was being applied. And, and he, during that entire video, he wasn't, he wasn't resisting, right? He was supposed to be resisting before that. But once they stop resisting, you stop using force. That's what we're taught. That's what's in my declination letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office as well, where they declined to charge me with a crime. Because... Even in my time of extreme trauma and feeling like I'm paralyzed and that I may die, which a lot of people probably can't understand or even, you know, comprehend, I was still able to look at the situation and know I don't need to shoot anymore. And if I do, it's wrong. So I stopped shooting and I laid there. At this point, more and more people came out to help. They had heard the gunshots. Security had been notified. Um, you know, the two witnesses that walked out when we were fighting just before I got shot, the wife ran in and, and got help. Her husband stayed. He got his handgun from his truck and he ran over to the subject who is now obviously deceased and just made the handgun safe, grabbed it, put it in a bag and, and came over to me and stayed with me. I'm laying there. I still have my weapon. Now in between this too, in between my shooting back, I had um, shot my gun light off of my gun. It came off completely. I didn't know that until later on. Nobody told me, um, which I thought was an interesting fact. And I had also worked through a reload. Like I said, I fired 20 shots. We only carried 17 um, in each, you know, in our pistols. So I had, I had reloaded and worked through a malfunction. I had a stovepipe um, with one of my shots. So I had, to, I had to do all that after I'd been shot and was trying to keep a you know, now violent felon from escaping after trying to kill me. So um, security came over and it was this guy I'd actually known fairly well, a good guy named Anthony, came over and, and kneeled down by my side and I trusted him. I gave him my firearm and I said, please make this safe and keep it away from everybody. Obviously, it's now going to be admitted into evidence. I directed somebody else to get crime scene tape and start to tape off the area so I was really kind of going back and watching the video, and I only sent you, you know, the, 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 main, the main part of it just to get an idea of what I went through for this interview. But 
you know, to, to hear the rest of it, um, you know, as, as I've watched it several times, it's about 19 or 20 minutes long. The majority of it is me screaming in pain, um, telling people I don't want to die, um, asking somebody to get my phone from my car so we can call my wife and tell her what happened so that she knows before she gets the call or a visit from the Albuquerque Police Department, which would freak her out, you know, that much more. But I wanted her to hear it from me and from a witness that I had been shot, you know, that this had happened and that I'm okay and that I'm going to be going to the University of New Mexico Hospital and for you and your mother to take our, you know, our son and to take him to a family member's house and make sure everything was situated. That way they could get there before I did. So it's still going to take me a while to get there. Um, I was able to muster a call for help on the radio. Um, then, and dispatch actually heard it, which was shocking to me. And, you know, so I yelled, um, shots fired, I've been hit. And luckily for me, there was a swing shift unit, a patrol unit who was getting off at, I think, 11. They worked 3 to 11. And I staggered that for traffic. He was driving by because this is the way we went home to, you know, when we lived in Albuquerque. And this was a retired Albuquerque police officer that was working for us now. So he heard this, was able to make a U-turn, and he got to me fairly quickly. <clears throat> now Bernalillo County Sheriff's, Albuquerque Police Department, New Mexico State Police were all responding as well as the rest of my agency to come down here because we were it was still an active scene. We had one outstanding subject. Um, you know, the subject who shot me, obviously, per policy with mainly every department, needed to be handcuffed, whether we knew he was deceased or not. They needed to be handcuffed until EMS got there. Um, you know, people were coming out. There was just a lot going on. But yeah, the rest of that video is me basically trying to assure my wife that I was going to be okay, even though I did not know I was going to be okay. I didn't know if there was an exit wound. If there was, I was probably going to die. Um, you know, uh, I was on medication for, for different medical things where um, I, it could have made it so I bled out easier. And, um, you know, I was just kind of finishing that stuff, but it was still in my system. So that was kind of a worry of mine. And, um, and yeah, I mean, from, from there, EMS, fire department getting on scene, helicopters in the air searching for this other guy. I'm being transported to the hospital with, you know, obviously a police escort. Um, the Albuquerque Police Department was really fantastic that night. The chief at the time, uh, Gordon Eden, I'd met a couple times, really great guy, still, con you know, I'm connected with him today. But his agency was blocking off lights, um, you know, traffic lights so the ambulance could get there sooner rather than later. Um, you know, and, and getting to the hospital and to the trauma, <clears throat> the trauma ER, which is a separate and more scary area than the regular ER um, that I don't wish for anybody to have to go to, was it was just a clusterfuck the entire time because they're trying to save your life, right? And <clears throat> you're scared to death. You still think you're going to die. You've never, you haven't had any images of your body yet. You don't know anything. You don't know where the bullet is. Um, you know, at this point now I'm drugged up. They're giving me morphine. They're giving me um, Dilaudid was one thing that they started giving me fairly right away. I remember when I got into the ambulance with these really nice polo shirts and they were embroidered and they had our patch on it and they were black and they were really fancy and we had to pay for the, uh, we had to pay for them ourselves, but it was nice to wear in nights like that. It was a long sleeve 
And um, they wanted, of course, to cut all your clothes off, right? Because they need to get to everything as quickly as possible and assess your injuries and, you know, what they need to tell the hospital in route to, to the hospital. And I remember I wouldn't let them cut my polo shirt off. So, so in, in while we're initiating the transport to the hospital, I did actually sit up in the gurney and took the, the shirt off myself, hoping that I could save it because it's a, you know, it's something that I would have liked to have today, though I never got any of that stuff back. Not my boots, not my pants, not my shirt. Um, unfortunately, but it was kind of funny because you can look back on certain things that happened and kind of laugh about it and you have to, but, um, but yeah, getting to the hospital was a very chaotic, um, it seemed unorganized, but you know, it wasn't unorganized at all because these were some of the best professionals I've ever, um, you know, had, had the honor of meeting at, at this hospital and, um, you know, you're going for CAT scans and of course I couldn't get, an MRI done. I still can't get MRIs done today because the bullet is still lodged inside of me. But, um, I mean, they, they get you taken care of and they get you up into the ICU. And, um, that's where I stayed the majority of the time for two weeks. Um, maybe I was down on a recovery floor for a day and then had to go back up because of complications. And then after a few more days, I went back to the recovery floor and then I was released a couple of days later. But, uh, I mean, the hospital is uh, is a whole whole different ball game from from what happened, and people don't really realize that. And I'm sure you'll have questions specific to that too. But um, being in the hospital after an incident like that is just this this whole different battle that you struggle with and you fight through, and 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 things start to become really palpable and really real and. Um, that's, I think, where the majority of your problems sort of set in, even though you are, quote unquote, recovering. But, you know, I mean, that's that's the gist of, of everything um, I lived, you know, and, and, and taking that away from this is really probably the most important part. Well, firstly, thank you for, you know, for going there, because I know, you know, every every time someone comes on the show and they recall a story you know i mean it's not it's not easy you know to go through your one of your worst days of your entire life but just pulling some of the things out for firstly i just want to ensure so you had the body cam so you did have a vest on i was wearing a bulletproof vest yes um like i said i was wearing that polo shirt so it was clipped to like we have that little piece of thread deal in the middle of those polo shirts for a radio mic um i would clip my um I clipped my body cam to that though. So yes, but the bullet was just, like I said, it was, it was my hip. So it didn't, my vest didn't do anything for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned about the cutting as well. I think every first responder listening has probably had that event where either a patient, you know, of a civilian patient or law enforcement has just, you know, berated them because they wanted to cut <laughs> whatever favorite jacket, bulletproof vest, whatever it was. So I think most people can relate to that. And obviously, you know, most of us will, if it's safe, we'll, allow it to be removed normally but obviously if it's a you know a bad trauma then that's kind of lower yeah, the, the hierarchy and, and i mean right i'm sure that they sort of took issue to it and and you know it was we were actually kind of laughing about it in the ambulance later on down to the hospital but i'm i'm shocked honestly that they let me take it off myself obviously it helped kind of pull it up you know for me but um i was going to go through any amount of pain necessary to take that shirt off and, and i went through all that and still didn't get it back but Whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a biohazard and burned. 
Um, all right. Well, then also just I want to touch on as well. So, um, yeah, there's the, the radio repeater. So just like, you know, sadly, a lot of the men that we lost in 9-11, you know, that part of that was a communication error with, with the, the lack of radio signal in the building. So you, there were areas where you had dead spots as an officer in your city as well. Absolutely. We had to, uh, on our radio in the cars, depending on where we were, we had to constantly switch to, to different repeaters on our, on our radio interface. And even that didn't work sometimes. And so we, we knew where we, would go, we, where we could go and where we couldn't. But there were a lot of dead spots. And it wasn't, it wasn't because my department and the government there wasn't doing anything to address that. They were. There were studies done. There were bids that were being taken. Um, but such an expensive undertaking. It was millions of dollars to do to do those studies and get you know and get all the stuff situated and then to do the work to replace the 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 repeater you know we had we had cars that we tested that we had repeaters in the trunk but um you know and i don't i'm sure they fixed it uh now but it was such a, everything with the government such a long process but yeah the communication luckily didn't play a role really with why everything happened the way it did but I do wish that I could have gotten the information out a little bit better than I could have. Yeah, well, it definitely left you very vulnerable. Like you said, not not blaming, but but it's another factor to right. what could have left Absolutely. you dead. It's a factor like to not having a taser was a factor. And does that bother me today? Not really, but it bothered me at the time. I feel like had I had a taser, things could have been differently. But honestly, maybe they wouldn't have been. Maybe I would have tried to tase them like I did the pepper spray. And it just wouldn't have had an effect. So you never know. And you can't. One of the worst things you can do in a situation like this is go back and think about all the ways you could have changed it. It happened the way it happened. And that's really all there is to it. Absolutely. Well, another thing that really kind of jumps out is clearly you, you know, you had trained leading up to this because you talk about, you know, changing mags. You got the stovepipe. You cleared that. Um, you know, even you're, you're changing the. Um, you know, shooting positions, body positions while you were firing back. Um, you know, how seriously had you taken your weapons training up to that point? I took it, I think, pretty seriously. I think that um, I had been through a ton of weapons training. I'd been through um, a lot of what they call downed and disabled officer training, where if we've already been shot, how do we respond? You know, um, which you never really know how you're going to react. You can train all you want, but I don't think anyone knows exactly how they're going to react and respond to something like that until they're immersed in something like that real world. Um, so I took it seriously to a degree, but sometimes that firearms training that we had can get fairly redundant and dry which is why I enjoy watching a lot of things on social media that I see out there because it's new and it's not boring and it's not the same old thing that we've been doing for years and years and years. Now a lot of training that we get are focused on not just standing in front of a target from you know three feet out, seven feet out, 15 feet or yards rather, um, 25 yards and just shooting at a paper target. Towards the end of my career, we were moving, we were transitioning from rifle or shotgun to pistol and, and vice versa. You know, we were practicing again, like I said, downed and disabled officer drills. 
we were doing, we were really as a department, especially evolving with the training that we did. Did I take it hundred percent seriously? No. Did I think it was going to happen to me? I thought that it could. And, and my wife and I talked about that before it happened every now and then because of everything that was going on around the country. It was, it, the reporting was more prevalent. It wasn't that it was happening more, but the stories, the news stories were more prevalent. We were hearing about it every day. Officers being shot and killed, officers being shot and injured, you know, so, so it was, we were more aware of it. Um, so I do, I wish I took it more serious. Yes, I do. But I think I was in a, I was in a good enough headspace to where, like I mentioned, and you mentioned my training took over, you know, and, and clearing through a malfunction, clearing through, um, you know, getting through a reload, getting back on target, controlling my breathing, getting a good sight picture, all that stuff really took over and, and it saved me. So it just, it just depends on when you get that, when it happens to you in your training. We talk about an officer or deputy who has something like this happen and, and they've only been a police officer for six months on the, on the road or a year on the road. I don't, I don't know that they're going to do as well as somebody. I mean, I had nearly 20 years on the job between, you know, a few different agencies, federal and civilian, you know, to where I, I had this, this leg up and maybe this a more of an understanding. But not to say that an officer, a new officer uh, with six months or a year on the job can't handle themselves as well as I did um, because some of them are coming in and they're seeing what's happening around the country and they're really taking that training much more seriously, I think, than I did earlier on in my career. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, uh, concept too, because you've got the the new people who one person would look and say is inexperienced, but the other one is also fresh out of the academy. If they've taken some good classes, they're you know they're going to be young, they're going to be healthy, um, and then you've got the twenty year vet who, just like you said, should be far higher trained, more experienced, more resilient. But as you and I both know, more often than not, the 20-year guys can also be very complacent and maybe have not done any sort of training for years and years and years. So, you know, like you said, we don't, we can't train exactly for it, but we sure as shit can raise that training bar as high as we can. So when we fall to our level of training, we have the highest probability of success at least. Right. And it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a lot of these guys and these men and women to do a lot of it on their own too. You know, I mean, it's, you're not just supposed to get training that the department sends you to or training for this at your department. Go take a martial arts class. I mean, you know, every week go shoot at the range by yourself go get a group of your partners and go train at the range and do these different drills that we're doing, you know, when it comes time quarterly for us to do our, our firearms qualification and training, you know, um, it's, it's gotta be a self-sufficient process. And, um, I hope and feel that a lot of uh, law enforcement officers are taking it upon themselves to to do this on their own. Absolutely. That's what I talk about a lot on the podcast. It's it's both. You know, your agency needs to do better. The individual needs to do better. If we both step up, then the result is going to be much better for everyone. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Right. Well, then the journey after. So mentally and physically, talk about. You know, tell me about the injuries, and then you know what your experiences were like as far as the, the the support in the early time, the early days, and then kind of lead me out of that. Mentally and physically, my recovery has been a nightmare. Um, and let me preface by saying, and I shouldn't feel like I have to say this, and nobody should feel like they have to say this, um, but I know that some men and women go through much worse than I have. They lose limbs. Uh, we'll talk about Operation Enduring Warrior a little bit later on, but I know folks through that organization 
who are paraplegics, who are double amputees, who are single amputees. And they're some of the most wonderful people that I've ever met um, in my life. And they know that they do. we all deal with adversity. We all handle that adversity different, though, too. I've dealt with depression and anxiety most of my life. So compounding that with this incident and all the post-traumatic stress and everything else that, that goes along with it has made things very challenging for me. And it's still challenging today, four years later. Again, this happened in 2016. So, and you might have to remind me partially of what we're talking about here as I kind of go on a tangent. But one of the things that I've had the biggest struggle with is remembering things and learning new things and focusing and um you know, maintaining the amount of um, concentration that I can have on certain things. And it's, it's interesting because I'm going through the disability process through Social Security right now. And I've been denied once, and um, we're currently under a P, an appeal. And I just had to fill out a, an updated function report a year since I filed initially. And I have to talk about these things. And I have to think about just how bad I am because there are still times where I drive by something and I look, let's say I drive by a construction site and I'm thinking, cause right now I'll be work part time and, and, you know, because I'm filing for disability. So I only work a, a certain amount and, you know, and, and I haven't worked because I lost my job with the COVID-19, but you know, I, I look at a construction site or somebody operating heavy equipment. I'm like, man, I could do that. You know, I'm going to try and do that. And then I think to myself, I kind of remember, I, I forget for a minute, who I am and what I have to deal with on a daily basis. And then it sort of hits me and I'm like, I can't do that. You know, I can't sit all day. I can't, I can't barely sit for an hour without, you know, excruciating pain kind of creeping up on me. But, you know, and that's only the, the, the physical stuff. And like as I mentioned, remembering things and learning new things, it's weird. It's weird what trauma does to you because you don't imagine it affecting you cognitively and, and I'm a fairly smart guy. I always have been, you know, and, and I feel so stupid because if I have to learn something new or if I have to sit down and try to focus on something, I cannot do it. Not, you know, and a lot of people can't concentrate on a lot of things, but I mean, I literally can't do it anymore. Um, you know, and then you add in your physical issues. I have, like I mentioned, the nine millimeter was a nine millimeter that I was shot with. The a main portion of that round is in my spine today. They are will not do surgery because it's too dangerous. Um, I don't have medical insurance anyways. I go to the VA, so I have medical insurance through them. But, you know... Can I dump all of my physical issues on the VA when my injuries did not occur in the military? I have uh, severe complex regional pain syndrome because of that. In my lower back, my left hip where the bullet entered and fractured my pelvis, my lower leg and my left foot. And a lot of that's from the damage to my sciatic nerve because that sciatic nerve is what goes from your, you know, your spinal column all the way down into your left big toe. I have foot drop in my left foot, so my foot hangs at more of like a 45-degree angle, and I can't bring my foot up to that 90-degree angle that everyone else's foot is supposed to stay. So when I walk, I have to 
I have a brace that I put on that I had to have donated from an organization because I can't get it through the VA and it's all, it's about $1,100 and I can't afford that myself. So luckily that's been sort of a game changer for me, but I wear that when I go out, it attaches to my shoe. And when you notice people with complex regional pain syndrome, a lot of the AFO type of braces go into your shoe and either on the side of your foot or on the bottom of your foot. And that causes too much pain and discomfort for me on top of the pain and discomfort that I already feel. Um, It hurts to have water from the shower fall onto my foot still. I have a hard time cutting the toenails on my left foot because of the pain. Everything is, is really hypersensitive. It's constantly tingling and in pain. Um, You're dealing with all of this initially when you're in the hospital. So you're on medication all the time. I was on Dilaudid and morphine the entire time I was in the hospital. I was on morphine or Dilaudid drip. And I'm still feeling this pain at, I mean, 100%. And it really does nothing to, to, to help that. Maybe a little bit. takes the edge off a little bit. And they're giving you pills on top of that. They're giving me gabapentin, which is pretty nasty in and of itself. I was maxed out at 2,400 milligrams. Maybe even, I think it might have been actually been 3,600 milligrams a day. Um, 12, yeah, I took 1,200 milligrams three times a day. Top of hydrocodone, top of morphine, and top of Dilaudid in the hospital. You're not clear. You're almost asleep the entire time you're in the hospital. The IC, my ICU stay, I don't remember much of it. People visited. People want to see you at that point. Everyone's at the hospital visiting you. They're bringing you cards. You're, you know, you have a GoFundMe account set up and people are donating money because you can't work. You're going to be on workers' comp and you're only making, what, 60% of what you made when you were working. My wife now has to take time off of work because, you know, when she had just started a new job, my mother-in-law ended up having to stay in town and take care of us. Uh, again, I had mentioned we were moving into a house, so people had to do that for us. You know, so life doesn't stop for you, but it stops at the same time, if you know what I mean. I was pretty much stuck on March 23rd, 2016 for well over a year. But the problems that you have in life outside of that don't end. So you have to deal with all of that at the same time, and it's very difficult. But as I mentioned, everyone's wanting to visit you in the hospital. You have guard duty set up because obviously, you know, you worry about somebody in a situation like that. In this situation, we had one subject still outstanding and the two that were there, the one that tried to kill me and the one that got away were gang members in Albuquerque. So maybe they weren't, you know, they definitely weren't law-abiding citizens to begin with. Um, You know, and and I'm sure even under the circumstances, you know, people were mad at you because um, they didn't didn't want you to do what you needed to do. So I had officers that were volunteering. I mean, they were falling over each other to volunteer to do uh, guard duty, and they would just sit outside my, my ICU room or the recovery room, and they would make sure that everyone went into the room, needed to be in the room. They would come hang out with me in the room when they wanted to and or when I, when I was awake long enough to talk to people. I had the big wigs from the Bureau of Indian Affairs calling and visiting. I had the U.S. Attorney's Office coming to visit me. A good friend of mine worked. He was a, an attorney for the U.S. Attorney's Office. He would come visit me. <clears throat> so I had all these very important high-ranking people in other agencies, friends, family. My family flew out from, flew out from Florida. They live in Sarasota. 
my brother flew out from Pittsburgh. That's where he's uh, living. And, um, you know, my family was with me every day, all day, minus uh, our children, because, um, you know, kids couldn't be in the ICU. We had a special code set up, you know, on the phone. People had to, or you know, when they were in person, they had to give a code to even come in. And um, you were able to sort of manage the visitors. So it was a really great time, even though I don't remember a lot of it uh, because of all the drugs I was on. But people wanted to be around you and they wanted to see you and they wanted to make sure I knew and my family knew that they were with us and they were, you know, be, we're a family. I was released from the hospital and went home. And this is, this is something that I still think of today that really had an effect, negative effect and negative impact on my recovery is you see a lot of videos um, over the last several years of officers being re, uh, released from the hospital, even canine dogs being released from the hospital. There's um, a lot of people there to, to send them home and they give them this big, nice parade, you know, and, and they drive you and they escort you to your house and there's people that are outside of your house and, and they're clapping and hugging you and all these things. And it's really great to watch that. I left the hospital with my wife, a couple nurses wheeling me out in, in a wheelchair and the, um, a sergeant that worked for a conservation division and that was it. And nobody was there to bring us home. Nobody was there to greet us as we got home. And in every corner we, we made in that hospital, every elevator that we got on and exited, I was expecting to see people that cared about me and that were waiting for me, you know, and that, that were going to clap for, for not just me, but for my wife, for all the shit that she had been through over those two weeks that I was in the hospital and for all the shit that she was going to be in for the next rest of our life, you know, um, be there for us. And, and there was nobody. And that uh, really was a kick to my gut initially. That Carol, you know, I, I didn't think, I didn't let it bother me for, you know, for, for long because I just, you couldn't. But it's something I, I look back about and think about today. And I'm like, man, that fucking sucked. You know, and I watch the videos still today about, you know, stuff like that. And I'm like, still, this is where kind of it started and where I kind of saw that that, uh, that the thin blue line really is sort of a myth. Um, and it makes me angry, you know, that people weren't there even just for my kids and for my wife. Um, not even for me, you know, but to show them that they were there for them, too. And, the, and that hurt. It still hurts today. But, um, you know, you go home and you press on and and. And you, you got to get better for your family and whatever better looks like in your recovery. It's not the same for everybody. Now, what do you think the reason was the dwindling? Because I've had several different perspectives, you know, on, on this kind of thing, whether it's someone was killed line of duty or whether they were, were badly wounded. And there is, there is a, a diverse spectrum from, like you said, the, the applauding as they leave the hospital all the way through to the kind of opposite. And, you know, the, the wives I had some, you know, spouses even talk about when it first happened, like they almost felt like they were pushed out of the way while all these responders came to help their brother or sister that was hurt. And so that obviously is coming from, from a good place. It's just overwhelming and, and ends up being, um, the wrong thing to do. We need to kind of stage and then allow the family to tell us what they do need and what they don't need at that time. 
Um, but you went from, like you said, a lot of people initially coming through. What do you think was the cause behind in your specific thing, ultimately having to walk out the hospital on your own? Honestly, I couldn't even begin to tell you. I think a lot of it has to do with geographic location and where we are, what department we work for. You see things like that being very prevalent on the East Coast. Um, and I don't know that it happens for everybody. It may not happen like it did for me for everybody. Um, I mean, for, I, I mean, it may not happen for the ones who are getting the support. You know, the, I know not everyone's probably getting these parades. And, and I don't know that maybe I should have even expected to have that. But once well, it would have been nice, though you know, outside of that. But, you know, once, once you get home, I think people sort of, they think, Oh, well, he's, he's good. He's home now, you know, and, and, uh, in a little while he'll, he'll be, he'll be recovered and he'll come back to work. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. I understand people have their own lives. I mean, I'm busy now, you know, I don't want to be, there's a lot of things I don't do because, you know, I, I either don't feel up to it mentally or I don't feel up to it physically. Um, but, so people get wrapped up in their own lives. They have kids, they have families, they have their jobs that they're still working. Um, yeah, I think some of it is is they feel like it's contagious, especially in law enforcement. They feel like if I go around Pete or his family, I'm going to catch this and I'm going to get shot or injured, and you know, I, I or I just can't see him like this because I'm so used to him being, you know, funny and and you know, goofy Pete and having a good time that's who I like to be. I think some of them ultimately in the long run, maybe didn't like me to begin with and just kind of was this facade, you know, that I thought we were buddies or this for whatever we, I mean, we don't like everybody we know. Right. I mean, I didn't like everyone I worked with in the police department. I could have done with some, without some of them, but it didn't change the fact of how I would have treated them. I think if they were injured, I didn't, I don't think it, it definitely wouldn't have changed any way that I, I would have handled it if I was responding to a scene like that and they were involved. Um, I just think people kind of move on and they sort of forget about who you are, what you did, what you've been through or what you're going to go through. And um, it's kind of sad because people from the outside looking in don't see, you know, they see um, – one, they see a thin blue line, thin blue wall of silence. See that we all cover for each other. A lot of the ones that are incredibly naive still look at the thin blue line as a brotherhood and a family. We're not. I like everyone in my family. I don't like everyone in law enforcement, and not everyone's going to like me. Right? We have different different opinions. We have different uh, things we like. We have different, um, you know, um, sort of uh, personalities. You know, and, and, and we're not designed to get along with everybody in the world. And that's just, you know, how it, how it goes. But I realized probably um, it started, the, the, the dwindling of the support I felt started maybe a couple of months after I got home. I had a birthday in April, a month after the shooting. So I had a lot of people that came over for that. I even had quite a few people show up for the year anniversary of my shooting and which was also the day before my final uh, internal affairs uh, interview, which is when I also, I was cleared right after that by the department of justice. But um, I even had quite a few people 
but I was really close with not only them, but their families. Not once visit me in the hospital. Not once visit me after. Didn't show up to my alive day party. Had nothing to do with me after the shooting. And for the life of me, James, I couldn't begin to tell you why. I could not begin. I can speculate all I want, and anybody can. But why the people that I consider to be really, really close friends never contacted me after, I will have no idea. And nobody can tell me. <clears throat> and I don't, and I don't, I don't want to talk to them anymore. I've probably lost more friends through this incident and the recovery than I have gained during the entire thing. Yeah. Well, then there's probably a host, host of reasons too. So I, I've seen, for example, with the, the mental health side, you know, when people have, have gone through crisis, some people push, push away like, Oh, you know, this is this person being weak. You know, we signed up for this. And then, then they themselves have this epiphany a year, two years later where they start, start going through the same thing. Like, Oh shit, I was wrong. So I've seen a lot of people kind of circle back and, you know, and say to people like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to, to shame you or whatever it was. There's definitely obviously an element. Some of these people, it is a facade, but I think what I've seen with, with, you know, the departments I've been in, um, Again, like I said, it's been a diverse spectrum. I've seen people who, you know, got hit by a car on a scene who, when they came back, their house was completely redone. The crews got together and spent all their free time roofing and, you know, and then, and then I've seen the polar opposite and myself, my last apartment get hurt and basically be off for four months and basically not, not get a single phone call from, you know, so. And I think that the if you're in a good department, if you're with a good crew, the the danger we make as the ones that didn't get hurt is that it's very easy, like you said, to get sucked back into shift life. And the newness of that injury almost wears off. And the reality is we're almost needed to be there for you guys later on. You've got your family, you've got the hospital staff, you've got, obviously you want to see that, that we're checking in on you, but it's the weeks and months after, especially if you're, if you're disabled, you know, if you've got some, some issue, that's when we need to keep, you know, touching base. The two, three, four, five year anniversary, you know, when, when those people are still there, I think that's very, very important. And I think we have a responsibility as, as responders to, I mean, as simple as setting a freaking calendar reminder on your phone. Hey, you know, check in on Pete, check in on so-and-so, you know, this is the anniversary because there's probably a lot of them that really do care, but they just got sucked into fucking life, COVID-19, you know, by Biden, Trump, whatever the fucking distractions are that, you know, we get bombarded with in life and taken away from the things that matter and, and you know, taking care of people like you is in their their heart but they just get so distracted and sleep deprived from work and all these other things that i think we have to consciously remind ourselves to check in on people whether it's a mental injury a physical injury whatever it is it's um it's a hard pill to swallow thinking back at my own experiences it's uh equally hard to know that i'm not the only one that has been treated the way that I've been treated by the people that they worked with and just, you know, general friends. Um, you know, I've, and I, and I think, and something I've been trying to bring awareness to nearly the entire time that I've been recovering is that the struggles don't really stop. When you look at somebody like me that lost his job, 
I wasn't retired. We, we didn't have a retirement. I was, worked for a place that didn't have a union. And really, uh, last year in April, I got a letter a month late after they supposedly sent it to me saying, um, we've given you this amount of time. You can't come back to work, according to the doctors. But you're only 25, 23% disabled, uh, technically. You still can't come back to work. So pretty much bye-bye. And that was how... That was how that was handled. Um, so that's not, I'm not the only one that that's happened to. I've had, uh, you know, but then on top of that, I've had other injured officers that I reached out with and became friends with uh, fuck me over for one reason or another and, and just totally abandoned me, you know, during uh, probably a time when I needed them most, you know, and, and they don't realize that, sure, okay, the first year that I was home recovering was definitely the worst part because I was confined to a couch, I couldn't move. So if I had to go to the bathroom, I had to get help up because I couldn't move. I had to use a walker to get to my wheelchair because I couldn't park my wheelchair too close to me. And then I had to wheel through a fairly narrow hallway to get to a bathroom. And then when I got to the bathroom, I had to use crutches that were stationed at the door to crutch myself to the toilet and then go to the bathroom and then do that in reverse it got to be so bad at, at certain points. I said, fuck it. And I'd go out the backyard and I'd take a piss in the backyard. So I couldn't even move. I couldn't even force myself to try because the pain was so bad to even make it to the bathroom. And those are the things people don't see and they don't really hear about. And then on top of that, the mental shit that you go through, even today, man, I have days where I'm just like, you know what? And, and the, the days are the majority of the time. I just don't give a shit. And you and I talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago and I said, I feel sometimes like the poster boy for suicide of first responders, emergency responders, LEOs, whoever, whoever it may be. Why I haven't killed myself to this day is beyond me. Probably, I mean, obviously it has a lot to do with my family. You know, I love my wife. I love, I love our kids. I love her family. I love my family. I love the friends that I have. We're very heavily involved in church, typically. We have a lot of great friends that, that I go to church with who are in law enforcement. are just, you know, basically good people who check on me. But I'm a mess, typically. I'm depressed. Um, I can't work. Even, even when I'm not applying for Social Security, you know, they limit how much you can earn. So I have to work 30, no more than 30 or 32 hours of pay period when I'm able to work. And usually it's less than that because I, I can't make myself go to work a lot of the times. But, <clears throat> I mean, you look at the fact that I used to be perfectly physically capable of working and doing whatever I wanted to do, whenever I wanted to do it, to now I can't because of a lot of the things that you can't see because the scars are not on the outside of my body for the most part. Everything I deal with is internal. On top of the mental health, I live in this, like, life of anguish and and hopefully obviously it's it's improved over time to a degree and i'm able to get through days and and you know do things i need to do for the most part but um man like i you can't explain to people who have not been in this situation to deal with the physical injuries and disabilities i have and other people have the mental emotional the pts the anxiety the depression and then you throw on top of that 
people who just didn't care enough about you or your family to check in or come visit or, or hang out with you or do this and that everything just stops, you know, after a certain amount of time and it's just fucking bullshit. And I mean, outside of my family and my faith, how I haven't killed myself. No idea. There's times I've thought about it. You know, my wife and my kids would be better off if I, if I'd either died or I kill myself. My wife would have had all kinds of shit paid for, taken care of. She wouldn't have to probably worry about things for a long, long time. But instead, here we are struggling to pay bills at times. You know, um, you know, wanting to, to move. I live in an apartment because Colorado is pretty expensive. And I can only work part-time until hopefully I get approved for disability. We can't move into a house because I can't buy a house. Because from the shooting, my credit got fucking destroyed. So over the last four years, I've finally almost been able to rebuild it to the point where I could almost buy a house and get approved for a loan. But then can I pay the loan? Because I don't work full-time. I only work part-time. When I get approved for disability, am am I going to be paid enough to to be able to afford a mortgage? Because typical mortgages mortgages in Colorado are $2,200 to $3,000 a month. You know, and if I get that, what else can we do? We won't have electricity. We won't be able to make our car payments or insurance. You know what I mean? Trying to still be an, an upstanding citizen and pay all my bills and, you know, have insurance coverage that I need to have because people say I need to have these things and have, a you know, a, a decent life for my 13-year-old autistic stepson and my 8-year-old who doesn't live here. But I can't fucking work and I can't take them on trips and I can't do this or I can't do that. I can't provide a house for my 35 year old wife who wants nothing more to live in a house. And I'm stuck on a second floor apartment that I can barely walk up and down the stairs to. Oh, you're in a second floor. Yes. So I, you know, and, and, and doctors love to shove medication into you. So, you know, they, they almost convince you to take, well, you need to take Cymbalta and then you need to get a, a nerve block so that we can help with the pain. But the Cymbalta makes you feel like shit all the time. It takes away some of the pain, but it makes you feel nauseous gives you headaches. It makes you tired. It makes you feel sick. It uh, makes you gain weight. I've jumped from 220 to 260 in a matter of months. So on top of everything else, I can, I mean, I already, you know, I've lost about 50% of the strength in my left leg. So now I'm going to add 40 pounds more weight to my body and on my joints and on the already, you know, injured shit I have to deal with. And, and, and then, so everything is, is, piling up on, on, on each other thing. And it's making, you know, in your physical pain and, and this and that, and, and wanting nothing more than to be able to get my wife and my, my family into a house where we can just live our fucking life, you know, and try and move on from this disaster that's been our, the last four years is impossible. Number one. And I mean, number two, I mean, you don't even, I don't even know where I'm going with this. It's just, a, it's just a matter of, People disappear. The opportunities I once have are gone. Sure, I'm alive, but really, is that a consolation? Not to everybody. Sometimes not to me. You know? So, I mean, my wife loves me, and she's very happy I'm still here. And my family is the same way. And I feel that way most of the time as well. But I think that, and a lot of other people like me who have been in this position feel the same way, and we've discussed it we would have been better off if we had died and our family would have been better off if we had died as well. And these are the things that people aren't hearing. 
And these are the things that a lot of us don't want to say because maybe they don't want to admit it. But if I'm coming on your show and it's going to be aired, I want people to know what the fuck we're going through and, and that it doesn't just stop a year later, you know, that nobody's job in workers' compensation is to get us back to work. It's to pay us until we go the fuck away. And then everyone else can forget about us as well. And they don't have to pay us. And everyone can feel like they did a great job and they can give themselves a pat on the back. And Pete's just, oh, look, Pete, we're going to give him a medal, but we're also going to tell him to fuck off. We're going to kick his ass out the door of the department and we're going to forget who he is. And that's a tough re- reality. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you spoke about that, you know, because it needs to be spoken. I had uh, Christina Correa on um, a few weeks ago and her, her, her story is very similar to yours. And so firstly, going to, to the suicide ideation, the number of people I've had on here that have said my family would be better off if I was dead. And, and some of them are saying it because they're so distorted in their mind um, that that's where they found themselves in that dark place. And obviously the polar opposite is actually true. Like no matter what background there is, your family are left, you know, with the trauma. However, on paper, financially, that is a horrendous thing that is such a reality in the first responder community is that they genuinely would have been better off financially because had they been killed in that house fire and that shooting, they would have got, you know, benefit package A. But because they had, because they had the audacity to survive, now the, the things are put in place don't take care of that responder. So you, you just to kind of underline, you could possibly have stopped a shooting in that casino. You had two gangbangers that drove their beat up old stolen car into the casino. And then with, you know, guns in their waistbands, we're going to walk into the casino, to do something, whether it was rob it, whether it was murder someone, who knows? And you took a bullet to save everyone that was in that casino that day. But that's the assumption I would make. And to not support a first responder who laid their life, you know, on the line to protect citizens after they are either killed or injured is a complete disgrace. So we should we shouldn't have any responders who are in the position you're in now because you you gave as close to the ultimate sacrifice as you could have. Well, your assumption is so accurate that it's actually fact. Because through the FBI interviews of witnesses and people that these two had spoken to um, before they went to the casino, their exact verbatim words were, we are going to the casino to cause havoc. They both had pistols. They were both under 21. They had no business being in a casino because they couldn't gamble. Okay, So you're going into a business that's full of people, even on a Tuesday, a hotel that's full of people, people that are working there at close to midnight on a Tuesday, what are you going to do there? Go get a Coke from the fountain and, um, you know, just make, make buddies. No, they literally said to people that they were going there to cause havoc. So, and he's also said almost made the ultimate sacrifice. And I feel like, yes, okay, that's technically accurate. You're not wrong for saying it, but in my life and in my eyes, I absolutely made the absolute sacrifice. My end of watch date, was March 23rd of 2016. Just like an officer who was killed, their end of watch date is the night that they were shot or assaulted and killed. I have an end of watch date as well. And people don't really look at it that way. Well, you're alive. You're at home. I see you walking around. 
You might have a cane or you're wearing a brace. What happened to you? Oh, shit, that's crazy. But you're still here. My end of watch date is not really any different from that of one uh, of an officer who was killed in the line of duty. I can't go back to work just like they can't go back to work. My family lost something just the way we lost something. Am I still here? Sure. Maybe a shell of who I was. I'm not the same person I was before. I laugh and joke with my wife and sometimes, you know, do fun things with my kids, but I'm not the same person I was. Far, far from it. And everything else, like I said, adds on top of one another and it makes things worse for us. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I literally, I mean, yeah, there were lives saved that night. How many, I don't know. I'm not really interested in, you know, talking about that aspect because we always kind of feel weird about talking about the four letter word hero, you know, and, and my purple heart that I got. And, um, I don't care much about that, but the fact that, um, I, I can, I can take some, I, I feel good. I feel good about that to a degree, but there's part of me that's still uncomfortable about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad that we talked about it because I mean, that's how I see it exactly. And, and I totally understand what you're saying as well with, with the sacrifice side. I mean, you know, aside from actually physically dying, I mean, you did. Your life was completely changed by that point. Now, what I want to explore just for a second, we know that basically you had pretty much no support after you know the shooting as far as you know pension, medical retirement, whatever it is. In all your exploration in the Facebook page that you started, have you heard of departments that have got a good structure that, God forbid, this happens to someone they are taken care of? And if so, what does it look like? So people listening can be like, well, well, you know, are we doing this right or are we completely dropping the ball in our department too? Well, understand that the Facebook page I created a while back have shut down because it, it's too much. It's too much for me to relive this shit every day. You know what I mean? And every second talk about officers who are injured or killed and it gets to you. And I think for a while it's, um, it's sort of soothing and maybe helps you recover a little bit, but after some time it, um, it really does a number on you negatively. Um, as far as agencies that are doing it right, I don't know specifically, I know that locally here, the Denver Police Department has a pretty great wellness program. I went to become peer support um, certified with the Denver Police Department's uh, chief, his secretary. And uh, she was going through that because they were really ramping up their wellness program. So it sounded like to me that they were doing fairly well on the mental health front, even before something like this happened to catch you know, they've had quite a few officer suicides. I think a year ago they had two or three um, in one year, and a couple of them were, were within days of each other. Um, and that's devastating for a department. Um, I know a sergeant with them that was shot multiple times. He was one actually the one that turned me on to the, um, pro, the prosthetic AFO that I use. He has the same one. But he was able to go back to work um, within those two years. And... Um, so he's had great support. You look at any any big city department, and they're going to have some protections in place. They're going to have a pension. You're going to pay into that, and you're going to have the state you know the state benefits if you get injured in the line of duty. But they don't make it easy. Nobody makes it easy. And it's not so much the departments; these insurance companies. It's workers' compensation. That's a broken system. The public safety officers' benefits, which is a federal program, 
that's a broken system. Um, I've started to apply for that. I've spoken to people there and they've literally told me that I'm not disabled enough to get this grant of it's like $250,000, which would end a lot of, a lot of the issues that we worry about day to day as far as our finances. Why can't I get that if somebody else can get that? Why can't I get that? Because I can't work anymore. You know, I can't work a full time. I just can't work a full time job anymore. But yet somebody who's died, their family will get those benefits. And I think that's fantastic. They should. But why are some of us excluded and some of us are not? Um, so there's a lot of work to be done on a lot of different fronts. Smaller departments, they're not going to have the financial means to, to create programs where they can. My retirement program was a 401k. Did nothing for me. Ooh, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting paid. Besides the fact... I'm not retired anyways. They fired me, you know, whether they want to dress it up in a dress and call it a separation is that's on them, but we all know what it is. You know what I mean? Um, you know, so here I am just wondering shit. What if I worked for a different department? They actually took care of me. You know, what if I worked on the East coast and they would have taken care of me? I think the, the NYPD has a really great system, but it's still not fancy. It's not perfect. There are still people that are going to get denied for benefits, even though they have a line of duty injury. We, unfortunately, the burden of proof, even in a situation like mine, is on me. So though they have CAT scan images and police reports, and I've been to physical therapy more times than I care to even talk about, I'm currently doing acupuncture that is not helping me. I've done several medical procedures, okay? So they're looking at this shit, and I still have to prove to them that I was shot in the line of duty that I'm disabled, even though the state gives me a handicap placard, I still have to prove to the federal government that I'm disabled enough to draw benefits, to be able to live my fucking life, even remotely comfortably, into a system that I've already paid all my, all my points for Social Security. So if I was 65 years old, I could retire today with full benefits, Social Security. But I can't get disability at 42 because they think I'm fucking faking it. Or I'm not disabled enough. They think that though I can't be a police officer, I can still work another job. They're not with me every day. They don't live with me. They can't see what I can and can't do. Well, you ought those other people hadn't also taken a life and, and had an attempted Absolutely. murder at them. You know what I mean? So there's the mental element. They don't even take into account my mental health half the time. Through my workers' compensation and my disability stuff through workers' compensation and my job, they don't even mention one time I was not diagnosed with post-traumatic stress during my recovery. And I was forced to go to a department contracted psychologist. He did not once send me to be diagnosed or to say anything about me having post-traumatic stress, suffering from post-traumatic stress. Not once. I didn't find that out until after when I was trying to apply for certain benefits. They said post-traumatic stress isn't mentioned in your, in your chart. I've since been diagnosed by the VA for post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression because I'm going through the process of getting a service dog through an organization out of uh, actually Tampa. Uh, well, that at Brandon. I think it's in Brandon. Um, so why four years later is that finally happening? But to take into account my disability rating of, like I said, I think it's 22 or 23%, they don't, they don't, they don't account for the mental health aspect, just the physical aspect. Why? It's just as it's just as uh, important. But so you find, I'm sorry, you find a perfect system out there for us 
and it's never perfect. It's still not going to be perfect. They don't, I was fired from my job. I don't, nobody's going to hire me. I don't, was a police department going to hire me even to work in their wellness program? You would think so because I've been through it. So who better to understand and to reach out to people who have been in line of duty shootings or catastrophic line of duty injuries, whether it's a vehicular assault or, you know, a knife attack, anything. Who better to work for your organization and that program within your organization than somebody who's been through it? I don't have to be peer support certified to know how to talk to somebody that's been through something like that and to understand and to offer them advice and to be there for them at three o'clock in the morning if they need it. But nobody's out there looking for somebody like me and the other guys that have been through this and the other women that have been through this. They're not out there looking for us. And that's stupid. It's a detriment to, to what they're trying to do in, in, in all the mental health wellness programs. Yeah. Well, you touched on, you know, the, the, fact that it's an insurance company behind it. I mean, I've heard horror stories from states where firefighters, for example, have been battling with a state that has cancer presumption. They have the law saying, yes, we accept that cancer is a byproduct of being a firefighter. And they've been told basically, well, we're just going to keep fighting until the person dies. And that's what they do. And they and they block and block and block. So our entire system, you know, is is so flawed and you know I, I talk about this sometimes that the military at least has a va first responders have nothing and like you said some departments might be good some not but you should not have to say i've been shot enough times to be disabled i was fucking shot in my back you know and the same with these 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 men and women that go through the mental trauma some people through their life you know their life path have been able to develop the resilience where they were able to go back to work. And you know, I'm not talking about any physical injury at all, just but they have a, a you know um, mental health challenges and they go back. And there are some men and women that just don't, that it just destroys them. And you shouldn't have to prove, like, you know, through all your near suicide attempts or whatever it is, this is this is how bad it was. There's no first responder that stands on on the drill ground the first day and goes, in five years, I'm going to pretend that I have a mental health issue or I'm going to deliberately get shot so I can get disability. But that's the fucking way it comes across. Meanwhile, you go to any any supermarket parking lot and you see these civilians like skipping out of these lifted trucks with pl- disabled placards all over them. And I'm like, well, how is it that my brothers and sisters can't even get the coverage that they need? Yet, you know, you you have to you're so disabled you have to park next to a uh you know a grocery store yet you've got whatever inch lift on your fucking f-1250 or whatever the hell it is you know what i mean so but it is it, it's yeah. it's horrendous and we need to change it because there the burden is already there for that responder whatever they went through now it is our job as a as a country to make everything after this as in an environment for them to thrive, to get them as close to what used to be normal as we possibly can. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the whole thing's frustrating. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I see people with, you know, and I don't want to judge anybody because I'm sure people look at me park in a handicapped spot at the grocery store and they see me walk out with this walking cane because I don't like regular, you know, prescription canes. Or they see me with my brace and I don't use my cane typically when I have my brace, but they're thinking, oh, it's, you know, he ain't disabled, you know, so I hate to do that, but, but you're right. There's so many people out there that are drawing certain benefits 
it shouldn't be. There's dead people that are still being paid. So I know the system's jacked up and I know they want to try and be a little bit careful with who they give it to. But I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It's right in front of your face. You cannot deny. I didn't, I didn't go to work one day and tweak my back and say, oh my God, I can't work anymore. But those people are drawing disability. I literally, I mean, come on, you can't deny it. And I have to fight and wait two years, three years. I mean, we're going on two years since I filed initially for disability. And I have to constantly fill out the same paperwork when some denied and then denied and then appeal and then deny. And it's, uh, it's really frustrating because the entire time you're in the application process, they expect you to go broke. Yeah, I, like I said, I can only make, I have $1,100 a month is what I'm allowed to make legally while I'm in the application process for disability. And, and, um, you know, and it's, and it's right. And I'm going to make more while I'm on disability and I'll be able to work less, which is fine because I stay at home. I want to stay home anyways. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be out. You know what I mean? I just have all these things. I mean, I, and, and, but I'm hoping for, if I do get approved for it and when I do that, then it'll, you know, it'll give me a little, little bit of, of, of comfort, you know, and I can feel a little bit better about going to do certain things and, and, and living my life with my family because the last thing you want to do is almost die and then not live your life afterwards. And these last four years, I haven't lived my life. And I'm hoping that I can get to a point, you know, and, and this is going to be a big factor where, hey, you want to go catch a hockey game when things open up? You know, it's, I won't mind if we can pay $40 a ticket. Let's go have a family, you know, for some family time and go, go watch a hockey game. You know, we live in Denver. There's a ton of stuff to do here. I'm not doing it because I don't want to leave my house. And, and not only that, I don't have the fucking money to do it. You know, we got to pay bills. I got nothing left after that. And we're barely doing that. So, you know, and it's my wife. All the burden falls on my wife. You know, and thank God she has a decent, you know, she's a really great job and, and makes, you know, decent money. Still not enough. So I carry that around with me that I'm not doing enough. And I, I'll never be able to do enough again. And, and you know, I got a great wife and, and a great family who who encourages me and says, you know what, you being home for our our thirteen year old who who's on the spectrum, um, is is what we what you need to do now. That's your life, but it's still hard. I can't go to work. I can't earn like I used to. I can't do certain things, you know. So like again, the theme is everything piling up on one another. So and that's where we go. Yeah, well, I mean that, that absolutely needs to change. Like I said, I mean. The, the problem I think that we see a lot is whether it's, you know, unemployment benefits, which is hilarious now because most of the country is claiming unemployment. But before COVID-19, and uh, you talk about unemployment, oh, they're probably just scamming the system. Well, most of the country uses that to buffer a period where, you know, whatever in their life they, they needed help and then they get back on their feet and they go to work and they never claim again. And it's the same with, with you know, medical disability. Like, yes, there are cases where there's fraudulent practices and it can be, you know, fraud. People always look at the, you know, the lower income people. Well, look at the, the, the mega companies that we have that, that defraud tax, you know, over and over and over again. So there are shitbags in the world of all social scales, you know, um, economic scales, but that's not most of the people. So to, to act like, you know, for example, your case, well, you got to jump through the hoops for two, three years to make sure you're not defrauding is absolute insanity when it's clear black and white in your case. You know, I get it. You know, if if a guy's a track star and he's complaining that his back is, you know, 
is is uh, so bad he needs to collect disability, but he's also the hurdles champion. I get maybe you want to question that, but a police officer that was shot, that I mean, you know, we it's just so broken, and we have to really take a step back and look at how we take care of our men and women. Yep. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever get to that point. I hope so. But, I mean, we'll see. You know, time will tell. And and if it's going to be someone like me that, that helps get there, you know, then so be it. Uh, I've needed to take a break from everything. But, um, I mean, who knows? Advocating for people like me is is, is important. Absolutely. Well, I, I know this is going to be heard by thousands of people, so I hope it's part of the, you know, the, the pressure. But speaking of fellow first responders, I want to transition to Operation Enduring Warrior. So I had um, a fellow law enforcement officer, Drew Stokes, on the show who was shot multiple times in basically a execution is what it was, um, died on the operating table. Miraculously, this one doctor refused to give up, pulled him, I mean, literally from the drain back up. Um, and I think he was the first person through Operation Enduring Warriors Task Force Sentinel um, and you know, that's a group that goes through Spartan races and they take wounded warriors, whether it's members of the military or now law enforcement, and they're looking to do um, fire next. And, you know, they're not <laughs> they're not doing this whole course on their own. They're, they have this group of men and women that carries them through their course. So tell me how you found that organization and your experience of, of your particular um, race. Um, so actually, I'm going to correct you. Oh, please. I was the I was the first honoree for Task Force Sentinel. Well, thank you. It was August. <laughs> Drew is a great guy, but he was following in my footsteps. Um, I love Drew to death. I think he's a great, he's wonderful, um, and he's been through un, unthinkable things. But um, yeah, August 2018, they invited me to the West Point Spartan, which was where they kicked off Task Force Sentinel. Um, joining Operation Enduring Warrior, which is kind of the parent organization, um, you know, that encompasses military veterans and their families. You know, never forget the families and, and their spouses who were injured, um, you know, performing their duties um, overseas. And um, so I ran the course. I didn't run it, but we went through it. It was a Spartan sprint. It was wonderful. It was amazing. Um, the, everyone there is just, um, you know, second to none as far as their character and who they are as people. But my wife and I did that when they flew us out to New York and we did it with a guy named Stephen Bones, who was an NYPD officer during 9-11. And we did it with a guy named Tyler Wilson, who's from Golden, Colorado, right down the street, who was a paraplegic from, um, the military. He was shot, um, and, and wounded. So since then, I've done one other. I've, I did the Spartan Sprint in, in West Point, which was uh, roughly five miles. And we've done, we did the Spartan Super in Sacramento this past November with Operation Enduring Warrior. That was about an eight miler. That was very challenging. Um, but yeah, they contacted me through an organization called Blue Angel of Hope who I know the the creator of that through some of my advocacy and outreach. Um, she's based in Lodi, California, where a guy named Chris Jacobson is. He's a retired, uh, he's a captain with Lodi Police Department, and now he's the vice president of operations with Operation Enduring Warrior. So they reached out, and we went through a little application interview process, and they accepted me into their program. 
And now I get to hang out with um, fairly, well, not too often, but every now and then, whether it's outreach or whether it's a Spartan race or whether it's this new program we're starting called Warrior's Voice, which maybe not starting, it's not brand new. They've been doing it, but now they're incorporating the wounded law enforcement officers. So myself, Drew Stokes, a guy named Jeremy Charlow, um, uh, what's his name? Well, of course, I'm going to forget it right now. I'm, He's the one that's been helping me with my service dog, Alex Douglas, a retired state police out of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Earl Granville, who's running for Congress, I believe. Yes. Out of Pennsylvania. He's a big proponent of uh, OEW and a big part of just everything they do. Um, but anyways, they, they get us through these Spartan courses. They, they take us through those. They will do skydiving. We'll do, um, they do like swimming and scuba diving. Uh, trips and little excursions they pay for everything which is unbelievable because especially in my position where you know i don't have the money to take a trip across the country and enter one of these races you know they pay for everything and um they they get us kind of you know like i said i don't i haven't really lived my life over the last four years of my recovery but i'll tell you the two times that i really have are the two spartan races that we we were part of and um you know, we'll hang out for a weekend. We'll get an Airbnb or hotel and we'll all just hang out and have a, a lot of fun with each other. And we can all relate with one another. You know, uh, the guys I'm doing, I'm going to be doing Warriors Voice with hopefully in the near future um, are all people in my, in my eyes. I'm, I'm blessed to, to have my name even mentioned in the same conversation as theirs. They're, they're unbelievable people who have been through like I said, drew unthinkable things. And um, all OEW, like I said, has, has given me that opportunity to know that even with the adversity I face and the difficulty and hard times that I deal with, that I can, I'm not dead and I can still do things. And part of why I've done the events with them and the outreach with them is to let other people other LEOs know and, and emergency responders. And I think they're going to start incorporating fire and EMS as well pretty soon um, who are injured in the line of duty. But, you know, it's to let people know maybe even not connected with law enforcement at all, but people who become victims of crime or just become disabled from an accident that just because that happened to you, you're not, unable to do things anymore. I mean, I've seen them drag um, people who don't have working legs through an entire Spartan course. And these people who they call the masked athletes, you know, do the entire course with us in gas mask and tactical gear from uh, the company First Tactical, who sponsors a lot of the stuff we do through an entire course, not only them, but me as well, because the last one I did, I, I really needed a lot of assistance and I was doing a lot of that work in a wheelchair. And they were, I mean, they were pulling me for eight miles for a lot of it, up and down obstacles, under obstacles, through obstacles, everything you can think of. And it really provides me an opportunity to push myself to try things that I wouldn't normally try um, now in my life. And um, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's definitely incredibly difficult, but, but you feel very accomplished after you're done with this stuff. So but not only that, they they offer that that sort of family atmosphere and that brother and sisterhood that that you lose 
once you leave the military, uh, potentially, and once you leave, um, you know, law enforcement, uh, for sure, because I've lost that. And, um, and, you know, they probably came to me at a time when I, I needed them most. Well, that's, I mean, the timing part is, is, you know, fantastic to hear. Yeah. 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 And then I've, I've had the honor of running, I think it's been five, five or so races now with those guys and with the Give team, which is the, 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 Give youth, team, yep. yeah, the youth group from Orlando. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we've, we've talked about obviously focusing on a lot of what you can't do. And that's very, very important because that those are the side effects of, you know, the, the attempted murder, let's be honest. Um, but I think what I saw with so many of these these uh, people that they took through the Spartan races was it shows you guys what you can do, especially if you have a community that gives a shit and takes the time and, and is is the strength to make up whatever you're missing, whether it's you know emotionally or to get over a you know a cargo net. But it's it's such an incredible thing to see that sense of the community, that sense of achievement. The pure just joy that you get, like you said, at the very end when the race is done, if people, you know, happen to drink, then they get the free beer at the end. If not, they get the fit aid, whatever they end up drinking, but, and then sit around and, and know that you as a, as a group, as a unit did that together, whether you're a completely uninjured, able-bodied or whether you're in a wheelchair or missing four limbs. Right. Yeah. They, they became that quote unquote family for me when I had lost the family that I thought that I had, um, you know, within public safety. And, um, yeah, like we talked about, the timing was crucial. What they did for me was crucial. What they did for my family as well. My wife um, is a big part of it. Our our 13-year-old, our now 13-year-old, did the Spartan Super with us. And, um, you know, it was really fantastic. And they just, they're just there for you when when the others aren't. And, um so grateful to them and um, the people who run the organization and who have started the organization. It's crazy that somebody saw that need and was able to create it, put it into practice and make it as successful as it is today. Because I mean, without that, who knows, you know, who knows whose life it's saved so far. Yeah, well, and that's the thing I see as well. So, so many people that come on the show have been retired or, or even active duty, military, law enforcement, you know, firefighters, whatever it is. And they stood up and said, this has to change. You know, we have to do better. And that is what I think we need to really focus on is if a Navy SEAL, if a, you know, a police officer can create this kind of movement, then a you know hugely funded governing body can certainly you know contribute and and change things so i think our so-called leaders need to look at the real leaders in the community see what they've done so much with so little and then kind of reframe their so-called red tape drenched attempts at doing good and asking the people that are out there really making it happen how did you do that let's copy that then because this you're clearly helping so many people and yet we have you know a thousand times the resources that we could use. Right. And, and you know, even with OEW being as big as it is today and as successful as it is today, it, it's not reached its full potential yet, you know, and, and I, I look forward to the day that it does. Um, everyone needs to know about, I mean, if you support law enforcement or military EMS, everybody, then you need to support an organization like this because, 
the uh, the positive impact it has on on not only men and women like me but our families is um, you can't measure that. And it, and it might seem sim- seem simple, you know, um, walking through a Spartan race. Um, you know, that's that's what people see. What a lot of people will see, and they'll say, "Well, that's not really a big deal." But it's it's what happens within you, and it's what happens within the people you know on the mass athlete team or the program managers of each you know the Task Force Sentinel program or OEW's pro- program. It's seeing the smiles on our face and and knowing that that they did that you know and 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 that they've uh, pe- people can't see that's I guess my point they can't see the impact that it has on us a hundred percent not even fifty percent you know and and maybe part of the reason why I'm still here today and alive is because of of them reaching out to me and showing me sort of what my capacity is and the things that I can do when I put my mind to it, you know, maybe that's a really, really big, big aspect of what we're doing. And, and, um, you can't put a price on something like that. No, exactly. I'm just looking up now. So operation jury during warrior was episode 186 of this show behind the shield. So if anyone wants to learn more, listen to that one. And then I'll also put the link to their webpage on the show notes for this episode as well. Jamesgearing.com. Well, Pete, I want to transition to some closing questions. We've been talking for over two and a half hours and <laughs> it has been amazing, but that's the beautiful thing about this podcast. Some some of my shortest episodes are 30 minutes. Some of the longest ones are four and a half hours. So a story gets told in the length that it gets told. And I think that we needed to take time for you to really paint the picture of you know, your career leading up to that point and, and what an impact that one night had, not only for everyone who has no idea that you saved their lives in those four walls of the casino, but obviously you and your family that, that had to shoulder that load after. So thank you for, for being so generous with your time first. Of course. Right. Well, first of the, the closing questions, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something to do with what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, you know what? There really isn't. Um, I don't read much and that's probably, that probably has a lot to do with my depression. I just don't do much of anything a lot of the time, but if one, one book I, I have started reading and I'm, I'm kind of halfway through, um, it's more of a, it's more or less my airplane, um, book that I'll read if I'm flying somewhere, um, is on killing by general or not general Colonel Grossman. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And if you've been in a similar position as I have where you've had to take a life or you think you might be in a position at some point in your life that you may have to, I know he does training all over the country for law enforcement and military. It's an absolutely fascinating book. It's very eye-opening. It's helped me sort of process some of the things that I've been through since my shooting. Um, Because let's face it, what I had to do is not natural. Um, though there are criminals out there that do it all the time, it's not a natural sort of thing to definitely want to or have to take somebody's life. So um, that would be definitely a book that I'd recommend to people. Brilliant. Anything that he's, he's, he's written, honestly. Yeah, he's been on the show twice. He's amazing. I've read all, all of his books. Oh, I would love to go through some of his training with him. He just seems like he's unbelievable. Yes, absolutely. He was here in Florida, actually, um, probably right before this COVID thing hit, and I wasn't able to connect with him then, but I want to get him back on again because I think his his uh, 
you know view of what we've seen the last few months would be interesting as well right all right well then same question what about a movie are you a movie watcher yeah um, i mean it's hard sometimes to pay attention um but i like to watch movies and i don't know that there's one i would recommend i used to watch it's i don't know how to feel about it but that movie end of watch with um michael pena and and um jake gyllenhaal, jake gyllenhaal. When that came out probably in 2012 or 2013, I've watched that several times. I actually just watched it the other day. I feel differently, obviously, about it today than I did years ago before my shooting occurred. But I thought that the movie was very well done, um, you know, with their procedures and, um, you know, some of the tactical stuff that was in there and just the way everything was filmed. I thought it was really cool. Um, but like I said, I look at it a bit differently now than I did because that happened to me. So it's a little more difficult for me to watch these days, but um, that was definitely one of, uh, one of my favorites. And, and honestly, my, I watched it with my wife before we got married and we talked about it afterwards, you know, and things were happening in the country. And I said, this is something that could happen and you sort of don't necessarily need to be ready for it, but you kind of do at the same time. Um, so and and she she took it seriously, you know. And and uh, I, I don't think it, that movie specifically prepared her for what happened or myself. But you know, I look back on it and I think, man, kind of weird that you know I wanted to share something with her that I, that I was really into, and and it just happened to be that. And it was a terrible story, a sad story, but a great story as well. And and um, it shows you kind of how you want things to happen and, and how you, what, you know, where you want things to be when it happens to you, if it happens to you. So part of that. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I watched Ladder 49, right? When I came out of fire Academy and got hired mm. in my first apartment. So yeah. probably similar, Great movie. similar moment. Um, and then what about documentaries? Have you seen any of those that struck with struck uh, a chord with you? Um, it's one called officer involved by, I think it's Patrick Shaver. Um, I used to be connected to him. He's a great guy. Um, I don't know. I bought that. And he probably still has his website up, officerinvolved.com. All right. So the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I think um, I mentioned his name earlier. He's doing Warrior's Voice with me. Actually, there's, I mean... Jeremy Charlot, um, he has a website uh, now that he does a lot of uh, personal blogging on, and he's got a Facebook page as well. Uh, we have the Facebook page is Officer Jeremy Charlot retired, maybe, and then his website is Relearning to Live, I believe dot com, and he's going to be speaking with us. Um, we all just got our fancy polo shirts from Operation Enduring Warrior, so we're all kind of ready for when that kicks off. Hopefully after COVID. Um, but he's been a really great advocate for mental wellness and the recovery part of things like I have been. Um, he's been a great advocate for staying physically fit. I've had a hard time with that. Um, you know, obviously mine is more, you know, medication induced, but um, he was shot one time and uh, he's got quite, quite a story. Um, I think the suspect was killed after a multi-agency manhunt. 
in this happened in Illinois and um, it was FBI, you know, it was federal and state local partners all getting together with the manhunt for several days, found him in a cabin in the woods. Um, and he's really faced a lot of adversity since and gotten through it. You've already had Drew on. Um, I mentioned Alex Douglas's name and Pennsylvania State Police, really great guy. He's helped me out a lot. Like I said, he turned me on to the organization Valor Service Dogs. And I've just gone through uh, the final stages of the process to be awarded a service dog um, for mobility and mental health. And I'm just waiting on my uh, final, final approval letter by them. And then I'll go down to Florida for the training with the dog at some point within the next maybe six to eight months. But Alex is a great wealth of knowledge as well. He was ambushed and he's not currently in the profession. He's actually a, um, he's had to have his right leg amputated below his knee. So he's had to deal with a lot of stuff as well. So, I mean, honestly, any officer that's been involved with OEW or task force Sentinel, um, would be a great, great wealth of knowledge and a great guest on your show. Absolutely. Well, thank you for those two names. I agree. Both of them sound like they'd be great people to, to get their story as well. Um, all right. The last question before we make sure people can find where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? So what, what are some of the things you find are positive outlets? Um, I watch a lot of TV. That's partially out of laziness, but it keeps me occupied. It keeps my mind off of things. I mean, I'm still at a point in my life where I think about my shooting most all the time. So anything I can do to, to kind of take my mind off of that and forget about things. Um, I play, I, you know, sometimes I play some video games. I'll steal my son's gaming computer and I'll play on the, on the computer for a little bit. Um, you know, when the gyms are open, I try to go to the gym here and there uh, at least a few times a week, just, just to try and get a little more, you know, physically fit, but at the same time helps with mental wellness um, take walks with my wife, no matter how short they might be, you know, I got to worry about my pain and, and how I'm doing physically. But, uh, you know, we like to take walks when the weather's nice here in Colorado and we have a ton of walking trails that we can take advantage of that are close to where we live. Um, and that's about it. I mean, family, family time is big for us. We spend a lot of time with her parents who live, uh, south of us about 20, 20 minutes. So, um, we play cards and barbecue and do things like that. And, and I don't have to be around people other than her family, you know, because um, I'm uncomfortable around a lot of people. Yes, you did. Yep. I am currently seeing, we actually, I was on the phone with Drew the other day. We were all doing a conference call for Warriors Voice. And we were talking about that because Jeremy and I still have issues with uh, the post-traumatic stress aspect of things. Drew has gone through EMDR and he mentioned that and he said, I barely think about things, um, which is great. There are some differences, obviously big differences between our incidents. Um, You know, uh, I try to stay away from saying one is worse than the others, but I look at his and I say, wow, you know, you're shot multiple times and died literally. So I think, well, his is worse. But he's also back to work, which is helpful as well. Um, but I see a psychologist at the VA hospital here in Denver, and we are discussing EMDR and a couple other um, therapy deals. And it's on the table, 
when I was at the time in the process of speaking to surgeons about a possible amputation of my own leg. And we were hesitant to go through with that just yet until I figured out what I was going to do. Wow. Yeah, I had a, a stunt woman, Olivia Jackson, who was horrendously injured in a stunt that went wrong. Um, the, it was one of those cameras on a boom and it was supposed to kind of go up as she passed under a motorbike. Um, and it didn't, mm-hmm. and she just, it slammed right into her. And, and, uh, she had the same kind of thing, a complete detachment of, uh, the nerve in her arm. And she actually opted for, uh, amputation because she didn't feel anything. It was like this extra kind of dead weight mm-hmm. that was on the side. And she actually celebrated losing her arm. Now, hopefully, you know, with yours as a way of some sort of nerve regeneration where you don't have to do that, but it wouldn't be the first time I'd heard of someone choosing to amputate to make their quality of life better. Yeah, and my issue is more of a lack of strength. Like I said, I lost about 50% of the strength in my left leg. It's more of that issue than it is a pain and a nerve issue, but of course everything kind of plays into that, so it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. We'll see. Well, good luck with both of those. I hope I hope they both have good outcomes. Um, so, Pete, I, I just want to say thank you. Um, if one, people want to reach out to you, what's the best place online or on social media to contact you? Uh, probably my LinkedIn profile. And it's just under my name, Pete Tanzilli. Brilliant. Okay, and I'll put that in there as well on the links. Well, as we are scratching three hours, I want to say, firstly, thank you. Secondly, I'm sorry because how you have been treated the last few years after, you know, laying down your life for the men and women that you protect is disgusting. And I would love for this to be three hours of positivity and how you were treated so well. But sadly, this awful story has to be told so that we can force change. So I hope that you going back to that horrible night, having to relive this, tearing the the scab off the wound, as it were, is going to force people out there, listen to this, to start having that conversation. We do need to take care of our men and women that are prepared to die for complete strangers. So basically, thank you so much for your courage, your transparency, and your generosity of time in this interview. Well, I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, I don't like to talk about it much anymore. Uh, it's not as you know helpful as it maybe was in the past, like I said. But in the attempt to maybe help someone else and maybe make a connection with others um, would be very beneficial. I think it could be beneficial for a lot of people, not only myself. So um, I just appreciate you uh, inviting me and listening to my story and watching the video and thinking, Hey, we got to have this guy on. So, um, that speaks volumes to me and, and, uh, it's nice to be able to, to, to try and help other people. 